Hello, Marijuana Nation. Producer Shea Gunther here with a quick programming note about this week's episode. This week was actually recorded in early May following the passing of Steve Fox, a hugely accomplished activist and friend to many of the people connected with our show here and one of the reasons why we even have legal marijuana in the first place. While I was not lucky enough to ever work with Steve directly, we were what I would call conference pals and I always looked forward to catching up with him whenever we ran into each other at industry events. In this week's episode, presented without commercial interruption, Chris Crane, Betty Aldworth, Jordan Wellington, Andrew Livingston, and Mason Tvert dive into the life and legacy of Steve Fox, with various industry luminaries chiming in throughout the show. So without further comment, here is our tribute to our friend Steve Fox. Welcome to episode 357 of Marijuana Today. It's May 10th, 2021, and I'm this week's host, Chris Crane. This week, we have a special show for you, Marijuana Nation, a joint episode that'll run on all the Marijuana Today family of show feeds, including Marijuana Today, Weed Wonks, and The Green Rush. It's a bit of a somber show, but one that I'm sure you're going to enjoy, where you'll learn a lot about the last two decades of legalization and one of the movement's most unsung heroes. A few weeks back during Finishing Moves, we covered the untimely passing of Steve Fox, a 20-year veteran of the legalization movement who played a role in nearly every major achievement on the issue during that time. From his time as policy director of the Marijuana Policy Project, to founder of Safer Alternatives for Enjoyable Recreation, to principal author of Colorado's first ever successful legalization ballot initiative, to co-founding the National Cannabis Industry Association, and his recent years as a principal at Vicente Cedarberg Strategies, Steve Fox was arguably the most influential and consequential figure in the cannabis legalization movement. And yet, outside of those who were deeply entrenched in the movement, most cannabis enthusiasts never knew his name, mostly because Steve was always more comfortable being behind the scenes and was driven by results over recognition. With Steve's untimely passing a few weeks ago, leaving behind a wife and two daughters, so many of us in the movement, including many of the hosts and regulars in the Marijuana Today family of shows, found ourselves not only mourning the death of a friend and colleague, but wanting to share his story to ensure that his legacy lives on, not only in the policies he left behind, but by ensuring that listeners like you truly understand the impact that he had on an issue that we all care so deeply about. So we'll be discussing all of this and more as we get serious about marijuana business and politics. But of course, for a show like this, I really couldn't do it alone. So I'm joined by some of the smartest people in the industry and the movement. So joining me today from Southern Nevada, we have a longtime regular, former executive director of Students for Sensible Drug Policy, the former spokesperson for the I-64 campaign that legalized marijuana in Colorado, and currently serving as communications director at the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. Welcome back, Betty Aldworth. Thanks, Chris. I really appreciate um, us all being on the show together in particular. I am so glad to have you part of this conversation, Betty, and good to just see you in general. It's, uh, it doesn't happen often enough these days. Um, also today, we have our resident master of stats and regulations, hailing from Denver, Colorado, the director of economics and research for industry-leading law firm Vicente Cedarberg, and co-host of the Weed Wonks podcast. Welcome back to the show, Andrew Livingston. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Betty. Uh, it's good to be on the show, talk about um, 
all that Steve has done, not only for myself, but for all of us, um, and really kind of be able to, to sing the praises of a person who uh, never really quite did that himself. I'm so glad to have you here for, as part of this conversation, Andrew. Uh, next up, we have the other half of the Weed Wonks podcast hosting duo, an attorney with Vicente Cedarberg and principal in the firm's policy shop, VS Strategies. Joining us today from Denver, Colorado, welcome Jordan Livingston. Uh, although technically oh, I am goodness. Andrew's I- policy older brother, <laughs> I am Jordan Wellington. Um, it is a common mistake that we all make, so so no worries and no offense taken. Um, and joining us is surprise special guest, Mr. Robbie Wellington. Can you say I love Steve? Poopy. <laughs> All right. And that's about what you get. I love you, buddy. I got to record my podcast. From the peanut gallery. Oh, my God. I, I, All I, right. I, I would normally re-record that with your correct last name. Uh, no but, way, uh, dude. But that you was cannot way, re-record that at all. That was way too awesome. That was way too good. Oh, my God. Your son is amazing. Uh, yeah. You should have seen him at Red Rocks on Saturday. Mason can attest. His <laughs> dance skills exceed that of your finest raver, and he's only four, so... He's Unbelievable. <laughs> All right. Well, finally, we have a very special guest on the show this week, the co-founder of Safer Alternatives for Enjoyable Recreation, or SAFER, a chief architect of I-64 in Colorado, currently serving as a partner at VS Strategies, the man once dubbed the Don Draper of Weed by Politico, and Steve Fox's longtime partner in this movement. I am honored to welcome to the show this week, Mason Tvert. Thank you so much for having me, Chris. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for joining us, Mason. This, uh, I, don't, I don't think we could have effectively done this show without you, so I'm, I'm really, really glad to have you here. Uh, now, Mason, you arguably spent more time with Steve than anyone outside of his family. Can you tell us a bit about what Steve was like? like what made him tick? What, what drove him? Oh, uh, man. Well, you know, Steve was just an incredibly um, thoughtful person and a very patient person, or at least uh, that's what I gained from my perspective as a very impatient person. Uh, prodding at him all the time uh, for guidance on things. But, uh, you know, he was he was clearly very passionate about this subject. I think that, um, you know, he found that this was an issue that he could work on that would affect so many various areas of, of the policy world that, you know, yes, it was something he cared about in terms of cannabis, but it was also a matter of, you know, civil rights and civil liberties. It was a matter of public safety and public health and, uh, you know, just every, every you know, area of, of society has, you know, touches on, on drug policy and, and cannabis policy in some way. And um, so I think that, uh, you know, he was just really wanted to, to do right by the world and, you know, to do good and saw this as an opportunity to do that and, you know, to work on something that other people had a lot, or at least a lot of other people had, had kind of overlooked. Yeah, no, I, I think that's I think that's exactly right. Anyone else have, have anything they want to chime in just on just on Steve as a as a person before we get into his 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 achievements and his accomplishments? You know, I would say that Steve um, Steve was very measured, uh, both kind of in his outlook on policy, but I mean, for those of us who knew him in his uh, demeanor and his tone, um, you know, Steve was didn't really raise his voice all that much. Um, didn't really like, you know, he'll get excited about things in a specific sort of way, but like, you know, he was, it was interesting, right? Cause I remember talking with, with our other close friend, Chloe Grossman and, you know, Steve wasn't someone who was effusive with praise and, you know, we were, we were 
chatting back and forth because both of us had the um, the great opportunity to be mentored in part uh, by Steve uh, over the last uh, half decade or so. And here, Chloe would say something like, oh, you know, I got a, I got a compliment from Steve. I was like, take that little nugget and cherish that because, you know, it's not like, um, you know, there's a lot of other people, right? Like, you know, Jordan is much more myself, much more effusive with praise. And so um, it was very special to be able to get to work with him and particularly special when he he spent a little bit of time to to recognize brilliance or excellent in others because he had so much of it in himself. Yeah. I mean, I, I always found him to be a very sort of calming influence because he's, he's one of those rare personalities who's like his highs were fairly low and his lows were fairly high. Right. I mean, he, he was always kind of right there and balanced in the middle. Um, and I think, you know, for those of us that can, you know, that can be fairly excitable, um, it was a real calming influence. I bet you have something you wanted to, to time in here. Andrew has reminded me of one of my favorite pieces of professional feedback I've ever received. And it was from Steve, which was after a radio or television interview aired, Steve called me during the Amendment 64 campaign in Colorado. Steve called me up and said, pretend I just said 10 nice things now. And then told me all of the things that I had done wrong. But that was, <laughs> you know, that was part of... Um, what I appreciated about him is that like, I knew that he was play, paying close enough attention that if there weren't 10 nice things to say, that I still wouldn't be in the job. That if there, that he was making an investment in coaching me, not an investment in, um, you know, in, in providing me with um, unnecessary praise that I was getting loads of other places. And he was just very careful about how he was, spending his time and energy in those moments and in so many others like it. But here's the thing, you know, when um, I'm thinking about it a lot, looking back at pictures and um, thinking about the dozens and dozens of conferences we've attended together and photos of, you know, a small group of people standing at the back of a room, you know, and, and when Steve during a conference or, you know, some party decided to hang out, you know, as a wallflower next to you, it was always, it always felt like a giant compliment. You know, you were going to learn something, you were going to uh, have some laughs and, um, oh man, if you could make him laugh, it felt like about as good as, uh, you know, give him a really good belly laugh. It felt about as good as winning an election. So it's, uh, it was always just such a, a a pleasure to be able to spend time with Steve, learn from him just by being near him and, and have the chance to get his inputs on what might be happening in any given room because it was always smart. Yeah. I, I mean, Betty, let's, I want to, I want to stay with you here as we start to dive into Steve's, uh, Steve's career um, and take this back to, to the beginning. Back when I first got to know Steve, he was working at the Marijuana Policy Project, and this was in the early 2000s. Uh, you know, back then, Steve really stood out in the movement because of his, his background in democratic politics. Uh, it was unusual for somebody with his resume in mainstream politics to make the jump from that world to marijuana policy. Right? Back then, it was considered by most to be a career-ending move if you ever wanted to get involved in partisan politics again. So, so Betty, can you tell us a little bit more, you know, for what you knew, what, what drove Steve to make this jump and, 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 and a little bit of what he was able to accomplish during those years at MPP? And, and others, feel free and you know, feel free to jump, jump into the discussion as well. 
you know, Steve was never afraid of taking on an unpopular issue, I don't think. You know, he was always ready to challenge our notions about how we thought something ought to be approached and to take a new view of how we were going about, you know, our our conversations around marijuana and other drugs. And I definitely think that he, um, you know, saw marijuana policy as a place that, as a policy area that was ready for, um, you know, a little more sophistication and nuance um, in the approach that was being taken and a little more daring, perhaps, you know, with the ways that he was going about the campaigns with the partner he selected in Mason um, to do so much of that early work. Um, but he, I talked to him just a few months ago for the first time in too long. And he was telling me a story about his first day at MPP where he was handed um, a, a legal filing on behalf of MAPS, the, where I work now, and was told, we have to help this guy, Rick Doblin, win this case with NIDA to get a license to cultivate marijuana. That was 20 years ago. He started working on that right away and um, started making a name for himself in the in marijuana policy reform and, and inviting a lot of new ideas and new approaches, new strategies to the ways that we were th- that I think people were probably addressing it at the time. I'd just add one of the defining characteristics of 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 Steve professionally was that um, his you know his ability to to see ahead and to kind of be moves that you know at least one if not more moves ahead of everyone um, and you know as I you know following following all of this uh, and I've been you know recounting stories so much it's you know really occurred to me that you know when he got into cannabis policy. It was really perhaps the the best example of him being, you know, thinking moves ahead of everyone because, you know, this was a time when he was in his 30s, you know, his mid 30s, mid to late 30s or so. Um, he's in his mid 30s, young guy. He's in D.C., trying to make a name for himself or trying to really get something accomplished, you know, like every, there's all these young people in DC that are, whether they work for a member of Congress or they, you know, other staff or an organization that their goal is to accomplish something as, you know, huge because they, they are so interested in it. And all these people ignored cannabis because it seemed like it was that one area where they could never accomplish anything. Mm-hmm. And he saw it as the, avenue toward accomplishing something absolutely huge and being able to really lay claim to having accomplished a major massive policy goal far faster than just about any of those other people that were probably his age at that time getting into other issues and uh so i've always found it fascinating you know it's like he's always uh you know ahead of everyone on thinking of those things yeah i mean you can't really understate how challenging it was to, get, to to jump into something like this, right? And what a big undertaking that was at that time. I mean, I, I was in marijuana policy at that point. And, you know, D.C. is one of those towns where it's probably the, you know, D.C. and L.A., right, are probably the quintessential towns where when you meet somebody out at a, at a party or something, like the first question you get is, what do you do, right? And really what they're asking for is like, how can you potentially help me in my own career, and, you know, when I answered, I work for normal, I, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm working on marijuana legalization. 
it was just instantly, it was either conversation was over or it just went into something silly because it was very clear I was never going to help them with their career, right? It was like, it was kind of a joke. Um, but Steve, like many of us in those early days, saw this as something that, that, that was the, not only the right thing to do, but that, but that could be done, right? That could be accomplished um, at a time when most thought it was, it was politically impossible. And that took a lot of courage. You know, I came from SSDP as a campus activism. It didn't take a whole lot of courage for me to be a you know, campus drug policy activism and go into you know, marijuana and drug policy professionally. It took a lot of courage for someone to go from mainstream democratic politics and an upward trajectory career there into marijuana reform at that time. Um, and you know, now, People are beating down the doors to get into this into this industry, right? And and having to you know kiss ass of people like Steve to you know get a job working under somebody like him, um, when you know back then they, they could have just jumped right in, and we all would we all would have welcomed them because it's like hey anybody with credibility like we'll we'll take you. And I feel like we would be doing him a real disservice if we didn't mention that the man loved weed. <laughs> you know, he he did, and he. he firmly believed that people who loved weed ought to not be treated any, any differently than people who used alcohol or used nothing and, and really objected to um, the marginalization of cannabis users. Uh, I, how many times have we sat with him and seen him envision a, the, a new world where you know, can, we would have cannabis-paired dinners, um, which is now a thing that happens. Nobody was doing that when Steve was talking about it. You know, I, I mean, I think, Betty, that's actually spot on. I mean, the I, the thing I've been thinking about this whole time is, like, Steve had this unbelievable, innate sense of, sense of justice, right? To him, it was unjust that cannabis consumers would be treated as second-class citizens and treated differently. And, and that carried through, you know, not just in the early days of fighting with Safer and everything else, but all the way through Amendment 64, when you look at the home grow provision or a lot of the work that we were doing today and how he envisioned VS strategies that I'm sure we'll talk about. But to me, that was, you know, the other linchpin was not only his uh, his ability to kind of soothsee the future, uh, but it was combined with this idea that that cannabis prohibition was just wrong. And it was a worthy cause to dedicate his life to. And I think that you you mix all that together because I think there were a lot of people that might have thought that but weren't willing to risk it, weren't willing to make a political sacrifice to make their entire life about this. And But he saw the future and he saw something that was so unjust and he dove, you know, f head into the deep end kind of trying to right that wrong. And I think that that's, you know, that's those are the kinds of people that make change in the world is, is not the ones that just can see the future, but the ones who, who have that sense of justice to drive them in the right direction. Oh, and, and speaking of, of, you know, having a sense of justice and bold political moves, uh, you know, Mason, I want to bring you back in here. You know, leaving democratic politics for, for MPP was the first bold move of Steve's career, but it wasn't the last. Uh, right when he was considered the preeminent marijuana lobbyist in the country and, and enjoyed a pretty comfortable role at the Marijuana Policy Project, he left there to go launch a new venture, Safer Alternatives for Enjoyable Recreation, or Safer, as a means of hammering home the message to the general public that marijuana is safer than alcohol. Steve was driven by polling data that showed if a person believed that marijuana is safer than alcohol, they were an unchangeable yes for legalization. But at the time, only about 24% of the population actually believed that. So, Mason, you were there at the early days. You guys started Safer together. Tell us a little bit more about those, those early days at Safer and how you went about trying to get that message into the general consciousness. Sure. Well, you know, Steve was at MPP and really um, this was, uh, you know, while it seems so, so 
innocuous now, uh, the notion, you know, this message of marijuana being less harmful than alcohol was actually something that most organizations working professionally on this issue uh, steered away from. Uh, it you was know, very normal, controversial. Yeah. Yeah. Normal, obviously, you know, talked about cannabis use being normal. But um, when it came to like, you know, other organizations, the Drug Policy Alliance, for example, um, and even MPP itself, they, they really wanted to focus on the harms of prohibition and not necessarily on discussing why adults should be allowed to to use cannabis or why cannabis is not so bad. And uh, so Safer was started because Steve had had this idea and he'd been bothering uh, Rob Campia that at that time, MPP's executive director, uh, to, to put money toward testing this this theory uh, of of focusing on on this message almost exclusively and and Rob finally said I'll give you a half of a grant you know they had a MVP had a grants program at the time and he said I'll give you a part of a grant um, to try this and see what happens and you know it was really because uh, in large part MVP did not want to be the ones doing it uh, they were worried that it would hurt their reputation or, or what have you um, if they were out there saying adults should be allowed to use cannabis instead of alcohol. So, you know, I had just finished working for MPP during the 2004 elections. That was my first job out of college, which Steve had hired me for. Um, and basically I, you know, interesting side note, I, I went, you know, returned to out East from working in Arizona on the campaign. And I went to an SSDP conference in Maryland where I was trying to figure out my next step. And that was when I first met Chris Crane. Uh, I remember going to the normal table at the conference and, you know, basically asking for a job more or less. Um, and of course, you know, jobs in marijuana policy are few and far between. Uh, he was very generous and kind with his time, but uh, you know, I had to keep moving. And then Steve showed up and it was like, Hey man, like, you know, you got me into this. What's next? And he was just like, well, there really isn't anything next. And, you know, I probably kept harassing him, and, you know, my entitled like sense that he like had to give me a job. And, and, uh, you know, after, you know, not long, he said, well, would you ever consider moving to Colorado or Wisconsin? Those were the two places that we were thinking of. And, and, you know, at the time I, was like, probably, I hadn't really thought of it. I thought I wanted to live in DC, but, uh, you know, basically, you know, he had, he had had this idea of, of really just going to a state where there was tons of public dialogue taking place about alcohol use, particularly on college campuses. And in Colorado, there had just been a couple alcohol overdose deaths on college campuses, and it was very much in the national news. And, um, you know, he said, Hey, like, I've got this idea of, you know, going and running these campus campaigns to just to highlight the fact that marijuana is safer than alcohol and to see if we get news coverage. And, uh, you know, I, at that point really didn't have anything else that I could, you know, to do. I, having no other legitimate options, um, <laughs> I decided to go with that and uh, moved to Colorado and um, we got started and, and things really just from that point went exactly as planned. I mean, I think that our, um, our grant application for safer used the the, the phrase uh, that that it was intended to quote like fertile the ground for a future ballot initiative to legalize and regulate marijuana for adult use. That's pretty. It might have even said in 2010, 12, or or 14, or it might have even like specified you know a range of years. And 2012 was definitely within it. Um, so it's pretty fascinating that it all really went well. 
Um, and I could go on and on, but ultimately, you know, it just, it started on college campuses. We got a lot of attention. The media paid attention as we hoped. And, uh, and I should also mention that this was also, um, working uh, with Aaron Houston, who was then at the marijuana policy project and had a tie to Colorado. Um, friend of the, friend but, of the show. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, uh, the three of us started it. And uh, at that time, you know, I, I worked with Aaron probably right up front initially. Uh, I will say one of the things that did come from that whole that whole experience was that um, Steve had wanted when he first told me about it, he wanted to call it the high and dry campaign. And I told him, <laughs> absolutely not. Um, like, I'm not going to go hang out on college campuses, handing out flyers, promoting a dry campus. I don't care if it also says hi. It can't, we can't say dry. And he finally conceded. Um, and, you know, I remember sitting around the MPP break room and I came up with the acronym for SAFER, which we all agreed the full name, SAFER Alternative for Enjoyable Recreation, was kind of a mouthful and stupid. But the acronym SAFER was, was perfect. And uh, because of the success of that, I think he kind of always deferred to me on naming entities after that um, and, and generally let me take the lead on it as like I, I got, I won one against him and he, and he, my prize was that I got to name things from then on. <laughs> oh, they will say, I don't think Tom Angel ever got over the idea of, uh, of having the, the acronym in the name itself. Um, <laughs> I, yeah. I, mean, I still, still hear about it to this day. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was in large, you know, large part really more about the the acronym than the than the actual name we never really pushed the name too hard it's you know still gets messed up today but oh it's a great acronym it's a great acronym and it was i mean it's it's a like this is important because this was controversial at the time and still in some corners of drug policy remains controversial and look i mean i will you know i will take some licks on this myself like i remember when i first got to ssdp as executive director and it was shortly after you guys had launched the safer uh campaign the organization and you guys were pitching us really hard on, Hey, you should have every single one of your college of, of your chapters try to pass this safer campus initiative, right? Cause it's going to get this media and it's going to get this message out there. And we were not bought in. Um, now I don't think I, I don't think I fought against it as hard as, as, as others did. Um, my objection at the time was, was less about the messaging, which I, I, I actually liked, although I, I had, we had some pretty intense debates at the SSDP office about it. Um, at the time it was, it was simply more that we were, we were an organization that was about more than just marijuana reform. And we always wanted to let our students work on the campaigns that they felt was most important to them. So we incorporated this as one of the, one of the sort of uh, set of choices of campaigns that they could work on on college campuses. But I remember you, I mean, you guys were to your credit relentless in that, like, no, no, no this should be the only one. Like you got to get all of them to do it. And, uh, and, and, and it was, and it was, uh, look, it was, it was successful. I mean, and to that note, I mean, Andrew, I want to bring you in on this. Um, you know, this was one of the main tactics that safer employed in the early days, uh, which was to get these students on college campuses to pass campus in campus initiatives, calling on their schools to equalize marijuana and alcohol policy. Uh, and, and it was, you know, in part, obviously, to help the students on those campuses, right? Because marijuana policies on college campuses tend, tend to be and still tend to be much harsher than underage drinking, which is still illegal. Um, uh, but 
but it also was to try and get this messaging out there, right? That you could use these ballot initiatives to get media in your campus papers, to get the local papers to cover this and to put the safer message out there into the ethos and help drive that into the public comp- uh, public consciousness. So, uh, Andrew, if I recall correctly, you were a campus activist with SSDP at that time. Um, so curious to hear from you, like wh- what impact did this campaign have on your own advocacy work and, and what were you seeing from the point of view of a campus activist, a campus activist at the time when this was really being pushed on college campuses. Yeah, so you know, I would say that Steve was one of the individuals who helped to show me that cannabis legalization was like a legitimate employment opportunity, and like not, it wasn't just like a legitimate issue. I I knew that as a as a kid, I knew that as a as a high school student and then a college student. I understand the need, the moral cause for it, but it was always the question of like can I justify this to my parents? Like, can I justify this to the future of my career? And I think it was three individuals who really helped to crystallize that. Um, and that was Ethan Edelman, that was Rick Doblin, and Steve Fox. Um, these individuals were, you know, credentialed. They were super intelligent. They were sophisticated and smart and wanted to legalize drugs. And I think that these, this is one of the things that gave me and a lot of other young activists the confidence to just be like, I'm jumping both feet in, not even a worry. There are people here that are going to, you know, SSDP was, was the support. If you jumped into the pool, there were other people in the pool. But, you know, the individuals that when you got out of the pool and you said, I'm starting a career in drug policy reform – I was able to, you know, show my parents videos of Steve Fox talking or, you know, uh, things that Ethan Adelman wrote. And I think that really helped to justify, not to me and other SSD peers, but to like our familial networks, um, the legitimacy of the the route we were taking with our lives. Um, and that was a huge deal. Um, and then really on the on the campaigns, you know, as, as was mentioned previously, you know, Steve Fox was always multiple steps ahead. And so it was listening and learning from what I would say was one of the best strategic minds in cannabis um, that there was. Yeah, no, I, I, it, it was it was so impactful um, for our student. What, what, what you guys were doing, what Steve was doing, Mason, uh, to, to the student network. You know, and I think it, it wasn't just because you guys were asking folks to pass this ballot initiative, right? That, that could get some media attention, right? It might actually have an impact on their friends' lives on campus, but because it was part of a much bigger narrative and part of a much larger goal. I mean, the fact that you set this out is that this is going to lead to a, 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 a state passing marijuana through a ballot initiative, right? M- made these students feel like they were part of something so much bigger. And frankly, it's why, you know, during those years, so many of those students chose to go work on this safer campaign on campus, as opposed to so many of the other options that they were given at SSDP and, and through these other organizations. Um, you, know, you know, Mason, uh, another staple of this pre-I-64 safer era was the book that you, Steve, and Paul Armentano from Normal published entitled Marijuana is Safer, So Why Are We Driving People to Drink? And I've heard from a lot of people in the movement, uh, especially younger people in the movement, that 
this book is what motivated them to join and to get involved in the issue. So uh, curious to hear you tell us about the thinking that went into this. And, and were you surprised by the widespread, widespread impact that the book had? You know, no, I'm not surprised by the impact. I mean, I, I think that, um, you know, I'm, I'm surprised that they let me put my name on it. Um, <laughs> Because, you know, Steve and Paul really, you know, did the bulk of that of that work. And, um, you know, but I, I was involved and, and, you know, assisted them with that. And then also, you know, added added some stuff myself. But really, you know, the 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 strategy there, the the whole concept of, uh, you know, Steve conceptualized this whole this whole strategy of of, you know, pushing the message that cannabis is safer than alcohol as a way of building support for legalization. Uh, Paul, um, for anyone who's familiar with him, you know, knows that he's an encyclopedia of all the research and, and data surrounding cannabis. And uh, he's also amazing at doing research. So when it came to looking at, you know, the history behind alcohol prohibition and, and of course the history behind marijuana prohibition, uh, he was certainly able to, um, you know, to, to fill that all in. Uh, and really the, you know, what I think is so great about this, I mean, it ultimately just became known as the, the safer strategy. And, and then there would be these debates taking place, you know, when, when, when states were considering ballot initiatives, uh, it was certainly the case in Colorado. And then it was also the case in, in some other states uh, like Nevada or, or Massachusetts, where there was, you know, the discussion was like, should we do use the safer strategy or the not safer strategy, which I found amusing because that, you know, who wants to be the not safer strategy? Um, just doesn't sound <laughs> it would be the dangerous appealing. strategy. Yeah. It sounds kind of unappealing. Um, but, um, but, you know, I think it's kind of, that's a perfectly good, you know, symbol of exactly what safer did is, is we made some, you know, the, what was traditionally considered to be something safe, you know, we, we highlighted how it wasn't safe. Um, you know, the notion that, that, yeah, maybe you think it'll keep people safe to prohibit cannabis, but it's actually not safe because you're steering them towards using a more harmful substance and alcohol. Um, but you know, the book, um, I think really just kind of laid it all out there. And then of course, once we won in Colorado, um, you know, we were fortunate that the publisher was was interested in putting out a second edition that was updated. And, you know, we were able to, to highlight, you know, the first edition of the book kind of went right up to, you know, look at how far Colorado's come as a result of this message. Um, and then we got to come out with that second edition that was like, we told you so, uh, which is always <laughs> a satisfying feeling, you know. So, um, yeah, it was, I think it's, it's wonderful. And it's also, I think what's really fascinating is that, you know, the, the message at the time I would have fought, you know, tooth and nail to, to argue that you had to really hit on that message. And it's just not nearly the case anymore. Um, it's still obviously a useful message and one that comes up very frequently, but, um, you know, that was a point in time where, as you mentioned, only about a quarter of the population or third of the population would admit or, or recognize that, that marijuana is safer than alcohol. And, and we now see polling data that suggests that that number is more around 50 to, you know, to, to two thirds of people that now understand that. Um, so it's just a very different environment. Uh, that was really the strategy. The safer messaging was, was in large part intended to push back against opposition. And the opposition is just a much different beast these days. I mean, you still have the 
the anti-cannabis folks, but it's far more about the details of the policy these days than about the question of whether adults should be allowed to use cannabis, which, you know, back then in 2005 to 2012, I mean, it was really just a, an argument that boiled down to should adults be allowed to use cannabis or not? And these days, it's it's really a much more nuanced debate. Um, but uh, yeah, I think the book came at the right time. It served the purpose that it needed to serve. And um, yeah, it's great to hear that that people have found so much value in it. And, and I will say, I, I think that the probably the best thing that you all were able to do to get the safer message really ensconced in the public's mind, right, was to get that first ballot initiative passed, was to actually start legalizing marijuana. Because like, the reality is, when people have a personal experience with marijuana, or they're around people who have that personal experience with marijuana, they instinctively understand it's less harmful than alcohol, right? And we needed to just, we needed to get this into the hands of people that wouldn't have been accessing it if it wasn't legal. And I think that, like, that was able to drive that message home in a way that would not have been possible had, you know, 64 not passed, right? Had, had marijuana not been legal and, and become more, more socially acceptable. One of the things yeah. that I really appreciate about that question, right? Um, the question posed in the subtitle of the book, So Why Are We Driving People to Drink? It was that any question invites more consideration. And for those of us who are thinking about not just marijuana and alcohol, but prescription drugs and caffeine and tobacco and currently illegal drugs and the rest, it's an invitation to really think about drugs in context and to think about relationships with drugs as opposed to, um, you know, thinking of drugs as a giant category of things that are bad for you. And instead think about how am I engaged in relationship with this substance in my life and how, how am I um, engaged it with people who are using it and how am I thinking about that? You know, all of those questions that lead us to a more humane drug policy fundamentally are supported by that fundamental question of the book. Yeah, no, it's a great point, Betty. And I, I, I know I'd, I'd be remiss if I didn't sort of wrap up this, this question. Um, but just to mention that, you know, if we talk about unsung heroes in this movement, um, I mean, you had you had you had a couple of them on that book. Like Paul Armentano um, is someone who also does not get the the respect that he deserves, or at least the the recognition that he deserves. Um, I don't think there's anybody in this movement who's done more on the research side of this um, in in terms of distilling things down to uh, uh, arguments that that can resonate with the general public uh, in a way that Paul has. And to have those two uh, working with somebody like like Mason on a book like that, like it's it's really epic. Um, and for those of our listeners who haven't who haven't read the book yet, uh, I, I mean I can't recommend it more more strongly. Um, so Mason, let's let's wrap up this this first segment here um, by talking about really the the most memorable part of Safer and um, these early days, particularly pre pre sixty four passing, and that was the amazing political stunts that Safer and you and the early Vicente Cedarberg crew pulled in Colorado to help get this messaging out, right? From billboards to chicken suits to challenging mayors to bong rip contests on the steps of City Hall. Like these political stunts became legendary within the cannabis movement. Um, so 
uh, Mason, I'll, I'll let you I'll let you start this out, but would would really love to hear each of you uh, or any of you who are who are comfortable talking about this, um, talking a little bit about some of these amazing stunts, right? How they came to be and and the impact that they had. Yeah, I mean, you know, I I certainly attribute you know most of this to Steve and then some to Aaron Houston as well, who you know when I first was hired uh, by MPP, I, I did you know a. a, a a few weeks of work under Aaron, but doing very aggressive campaign work and, and kind of, you know, really cutting my teeth and that getting comfortable with the idea of confronting a lawmaker, you know, confronting a congressional member in public and calling them out. I mean, that's something that I had not really previously done before, but, um, you know, with the, I, I will say that, you know, we, we ended up doing a, a whole lot of very fun and creative publicity, you know, stunts. Um, but really the most enjoyable part was, was like the process of coming up with this shit. Like, I mean, the, um, the number, like the cutting room floor was, was far more entertaining than the things themselves. Um, like the number of, of ideas back and forth and, and really like, you know, it's like to watch it kind of distill down from like, some, you know, it might be the case that I, I would say, would it be really stupid if, <laughs> or Steve saying, you know, like, before you say this is stupid, think about this. And like, I mean, it was all, it was kind of like, um, you know, really, I kind of took a leap of faith. I mean, basically the guy, you know, within six months of the, you know, uh, of the time we started Safer, my name and picture appeared in newspapers around the world and we'd accomplished something that had never been done before. So at that point, I kind of, you know, just invested my, my faith in, in him and, uh, you know, figured that if he thought it was a good idea, then it must be. Um, now there were certainly occasions where that might not have always been the case. And he's acknowledged some of those, uh, such as the infamous shouting down of, of, uh, a bunch of law enforcement officials at a, at their news conference in front of the state Capitol, uh, which, you know, honestly at the time for the time and place it ended up being the right thing to do, you could argue, but politically, I mean, it resulted, you know, I think the Denver post called this Brown shirts. Um, uh, it was ah. definitely not something. Yeah. It's definitely not something that necessarily, um, painted us in the best light, but, um, you know, he was just very aggressive and it was not a matter of like, it wasn't a matter of like, is this too aggressive? It was like, is the, you know, is the outcome worth it? Um, and, you know, and there was, it wasn't enough, no idea was written off immediately necessarily. It was always, you know, a matter of thinking them through, but like, yeah. And we also, I will also say that we had a lot of, you know, serendipity on our side. I mean, we decided like, let's, you know, I, I'm sure it was his idea. Uh, there was a TV commercial about, you know, back in, you know, way back in 2000, whatever, six, um, people might recall it was a guy sitting on a sofa saying that he used marijuana and nothing happened. And it was the same, you know, we just sat there and it was so boring and they didn't go out and have friends or accomplish anything. They just sat there and it's the safest thing in the world. And he thought that that was so amusing that the drug czar's office was running a national television ad saying marijuana use is the safest thing in the world. And was like, let's, you know, get a billboard uh, put up and, you know, like, and it was always, you know, he'd come up with the ideas. I had to call the billboard companies and try to convince them to do this stuff. But like, <laughs> you know, they you know managed to get them to agree to, to do it. And, uh, but like, you know, that, that's funny, but the fact that the drugs are decided to visit Colorado and oppose like what we were doing, like 
the day that we were putting it up, which we couldn't have asked, you know, couldn't have begged for. Um, I mean, that's just luck. But we we had that on on several occasions um, where things just kind of worked out very well for us. Um, but yeah, you know, the drug duel with 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 then Mayor John Hickenlooper, now U.S. Senator, um, that was one where you know. I, he was like, yeah, yeah, like you, you, you'll, you'll go out there. And oftentimes he would come up with the core of it and I would, you know, and this, this applies to the book too. I mean, my job was to, you know, take things and make them polish them up. Like he was like, what, you know, challenge the mayor to a drug duel where he'll drink and you'll use marijuana. And I was like, <laughs> well, his office is in the city County building, which is, you know, let's say, you know, outside of the court which it is, you know, at high noon, like let's do it at noon and say it's at high noon and outside the courtroom, like, and really ham up the whole dual thing. And, um, and then I think uh, another part of it, you know, it, it, what I also found is that sometimes I was just trying to, like, I had an audience of one, you know, people would say that they like, you know, people like Republican officials are always just appealing to Donald Trump. In some ways I was really just trying to get it right for Steve's benefit. Um, and, you know, because I knew that if he was happy with it, then it must have been good. So, yeah, we had a lot of fun stuff. Um, uh, why, you know, billboards. I mean, I, I never had any experience with billboards and never thought I would when I finished college. And uh, lo and behold, that became our primary medium. Um, and I don't think these days you really get much out of them anymore because, you know, it used to be that a billboard about marijuana came about once in a blue moon. And now, you know, there's billboards about various cannabis related things all the time. They're not necessarily ads, but political messages and what have you. But I yeah, mean, it, th those were, uh, some of those were amazing. The, 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 the duel is the one that really stands out to me. Um, the, the press coverage that you guys got, I mean, we, I was, I was in DC at the SSDP office at that time and we all knew about that. I mean, that was just everywhere. Um, but even, the, I mean, you guys ran billboards about Dick Cheney uh, when he was uh, when he was vice president. Um, you ran a Super print Bowl ads, yeah, word, print right? ads, uh, print ads about print Bush ads. and Cheney, stuff around the Super Bowl. Yeah, so you know, all, all sorts of, and, and it's funny because you know, while so many of them go right, uh, like there are certain things I've I always used to give him crap because. Uh, I thought doing something around NASCAR would be hilarious and he just didn't think it was gonna gonna work. And I finally did do that at MPP and it, it was huge. It was one of, um, Rob Campia had said that it was, you know, other than um, the first Institute of Medicine report coming out, you know, on cannabis, it was, it was the number one largest media related event in MPP's history. Um, Amazing. Because it just got so much attention and, and uh, you know, Steve was always, I, I'm sure that I, I let him review everything before I did it anyway. And he, and he happily did. Anyone else want to chime in with a favorite sort of stunt from those days before we, uh, we wrap the segment up? I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll share the story. I, I'd missed out, um, as, as some of our friends, at least on the recording know, uh, for all the original days of all the antics. Um, but the one, you know, I had been, uh, you know, an attorney, I was working at the state legislature. I was then at the marijuana enforcement division and, uh, you know, you show up to work and, and there were cops and they had guns and badges and some of them were nice guys, but it certainly wasn't where I fit in. Uh, I left the MED in February of 2014. Um, I showed up to work in about mid March of 2014, uh, thinking I was just going to be talking about compliance and policy all day. And someone came into my office and they were like, Mason's going to go down 
down to the governor's mansion, which was like a block and a half from the old VS marijuana mansion. And uh, the governor is hosting a, a toga party, an alcohol themed toga party. This was then governor, former mayor at the time, governor and now Senator John Hickenlooper. Um, and Mason was going to hold a press conference in a toga talking about how, how, you know, Governor Hickenlooper was not the most welcoming of cannabis policy and the idea that, you know, at that time, cannabis hospitality did not exist in Colorado and they were going to have an alcohol themed toga party, the kind of like in, envisionment of overconsumption of alcohol at the governor's mansion and in a high, in a way to highlight kind of how ridiculous and untenable those two positions would be. Mason uh, held a, a one man toga party outside of the governor's mansion um, with a photo and, and, and had a sign where it crossed out the governor's mansion and wrote Delta house. So it really like jimed in. And I, you know, I was like one month into VS. I mean, I would probably been there, you know, 20 days of work or something like that. And I show up and they're like, no, 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 no. we're not, we're not being lawyers today. We're going to go do this thing. And I was like, all right, you know what? Like I'm home. Like these are all my people. And like, whether it was, you know, the signs that said regulation works, get over it or all of these other things that, you know, we've evolved and, and, and I don't think we get to kind of goof off and do that stuff quite as much as we used to. But I think for me, that was one that, that really always stood out, even though I don't know that Mason loves me bringing up the story all the time. Um, but I do have pictures. I did show y'all on the zoom. And for me, it was one of those foundational moments of when I first joined the team in 2014 being like, all right, this is like, these are my kind of people. Like they're, 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 they're definitely uh, very, very different than the folks at the marijuana enforcement division, um, where they still never gave me a gun the whole time I was there. I can't imagine why. So, um, I think I fit in a lot better once I, w w once I landed there. I think marijuana enforcement and firearms just doesn't like, doesn't sound like it goes together. One point of point of clarification, this doesn't necessarily need to be included, but, uh, uh, what, what had happened was the, the state, they were talking about banning consumption of cannabis on your own balcony or in your backyard. And the governor's mansion put out a whole thing that they were going to have tap, like have kegs and, and kegerators, like a, in, in, in a tap installed in the governor's mansion. And that they were proud, like they were tweeting about how there was, it would be the first governor's mansion to have its own dedicated beer taps. So that, that was what actually inspired the, the well, toga we should, party. We, sh we should take that full circle. Now, now that we have governor Polis in there and, and the most friendly marijuana governor in the country, let's get like volcanoes installed in the governor's mansion and have to be the <laughs> first to do that. Yeah. <laughs> the problem is he doesn't, he, he, he is not, uh, he, he does anything. not partake. It's all about, it's all about the symbolism. We're, all right, we're going to wrap it up here. And when we come back for segment two, we will continue our conversation about the life and legacy of Steve Fox. But to take us into the break, we've got some very special testimonials from some other luminaries of the cannabis reform movement and industry about the impact that Steve has had on the issue and on them personally. This is Dale Sky Jones of Oaksterdam University and the Prop 19 campaign, as well as the Reform CA initiatives. As the first lobbyist for cannabis, some in the cannabis movement thought Steve to be a wolf in sheep's clothing, waiting for the real Steve to show himself for what he really was. But Steve Fox, he kept showing up and he kept showing us who he was. And it turns out after over 20 years, he was quite the opposite. Steve was always who he claimed to be, a brilliant strategist, a political wonk, a campaign prodigy, and a social justice warrior. Steve was so much more than that, though. 
He was a loving, concerned father and husband, a kind and gentle man, a gentleman. Steve was tireless in his endeavor to build consensus and unity. He would seek out and connect with people, especially new and young advocates. Steve would show even young people respect and consideration. I would leave my daughters with him. And that is more than I can say for many in a male dominated political circle or the upper echelons of the industry. So I feel it's really important to state how much as a woman, I felt his respect. I felt safe with Steve, never condescending, never condescending or dismissive. Steve knew every voice mattered and the chorus combined could be powerful indeed if only we could keep a beat and agree on the tune. Steve Fox knew that we would need fuel in the fire of marijuana policy reform and he was patient. He was a coach, he was a mentor and he was my friend. As I looked over the decade of texts, emails, meeting invitations, policy papers, conversations about voters and polls and coalitions and organizing from grassroots to grass tops, I see the record of his care, attention to detail, and concerns for the people involved. Steve practiced random acts of kindness all the time. He was an everyday hero the kind of person who keeps feeding positivity into others, especially when they, when I most needed it. I felt Steve was the person I could turn to on the national front for camaraderie, support, commiserating on the difficult obstacles. Sometimes we would just call each other to vent and know that it was a safe place to do so and that we would not judge or be judged. Steve Fox was a safe place to be a human with. We could have fun debates about how words matter and argue always about marijuana versus cannabis verbiage, but he would never let words get in the way of a good plan or unity. Steve never lost the signal through the noise. I realize in looking through our history that I had invited him to join the Clubhouse app just this past March. I missed him. I missed his voice. I knew it would lend so much to the folks listening. And since we met up two years ago this week in the basement cafeteria of the Dirksen Senate office building, we tried to schedule breakfast. It just seemed too difficult. In the moment, we promised as we parted to catch up by phone soon. And then the world got flipped upside down and we only texted, never spoke again. All I can do beyond regretting not being more assertive and calling my friend is to live up to his ideals and values, to try to fill the void of building consensus and comradeship amongst the industry and movement, to legalize, decriminalize, and deschedule cannabis. Steve knew that marijuana was safer. Message would work, and it did. Steve knew if we could just disassemble the circular firing squad and face the front that this coalition would win and it can. Let us all live in the spirit of Steve Fox and honor him through our everyday actions. Thank you. This is Dale Sky Jones honoring the memory of Mr. Steve Fox. Rest in power, my brother. 
My name is Paul Armentano, and I'm the Deputy Director for Normal, the National Organization for the Reform of Marijuana Laws. But more importantly, for today's discussion, I was the co-author, along with Steve Fox and Mason Tavert, of the book, Marijuana is Safer, So Why Are We Driving People to Drink? This book was the brainchild of Steve Fox. Steve first approached me sometime around 2005, or maybe it was 2006, with the concept for the book. And at that time, he already had the title, which of course I loved. Keep in mind, the marijuana landscape then was very different compared to how it is today. No state had yet at that time legalized the adult use of cannabis and public support for the issue was below 50%. Steve wanted to change that reality and he believed that this book and this message was the way to do it. Steve showed me some polling at that time and it affirmed that most everyone who agreed with the premise that marijuana is safer than alcohol also therefore believed cannabis should be legal. And the same polling showed that about one third of the country agreed, even back then, that marijuana is safer than alcohol. So by a simple matter of math, our goal was clear. Convince another 17% or so of the American public that marijuana is safer than alcohol. And if we were successful, we would for the first time achieve majority public support for marijuana legalization in the United States. This book was the mechanism to begin this discourse. Of course, time has ultimately proven Steve to be correct. In fact, we didn't even have to wait very long to learn that this strategy would be successful. Because in 2012, voters in Colorado became the first in the nation to decide in favor of legalizing marijuana for adults. The focus of that campaign was the marijuana is safer messaging. A short time later, the New York Times editorial board came out publicly for the first time in favor of legalizing marijuana. This was a huge step toward mainstreaming our issue. And in the Times editorial, in a pullout quote, was the rationale that marijuana was safer than alcohol. It was our messaging in the New York Times. Looking at the cultural and political landscape today, it is obvious that Steve's vision helped to transform the mainstream narrative surrounding cannabis. That transformation played a major role in the policy successes that we enjoy today, and it will continue to pay dividends going forward. His efforts and his presence of mind and his strategy will be surely missed, but his legacy and his message will live on. Hi there. First of all, thank you for uh, thank you guys for giving me the opportunity to say a few words about um, Steve Fox and and his legacy. Um, I'm Aaron Smith, uh, co-founder uh, along with Steve uh, of the National Cannabis Industry Association. Um, I was fortunate enough to meet Steve uh, 16 or 17 years ago when we uh, worked together at the Marijuana Policy Project, but. Um, really didn't get to know him too well. He was sort of a, uh, an icon to me back back then um, until we started working much cl more closely together uh, just about 11 years ago, almost to the day. Um, it was May of 2010, May or June of 2010. Uh, Steve approached me with this idea of starting a trade association for cannabis businesses, which at the time was 
um, you know, very forward thinking and even, you know, kind of radical, I think from a lot of, a lot of folks in the industry or in the, the movement, we didn't even call it an industry then. Um, and, you know, Steve had this idea that, that this was going to evolve into a real true industry with, um, you know, millions or, or hundreds of thousands of employees and, and billions in, in, uh, economic activity. And I, I was even a little skeptical to be honest. And I remember asking Steve, like, you know, well, why, why don't you run this thing? <laughs> and, uh, and I, I remember his, um, answer was that, you know, he, he, he was an idea guy and he wanted to, you know, plant the seed and, and, and assist, um, but wanted to be able to have his hands in, in many things, which, um, really worked out like Steve had, he, he, he had, he was a central figure in every develop, every positive development around marijuana policy reform, uh, in the mod, in its modern era in the last two decades. And, and we all, uh, have a, just a great deal, um, that we owe to Steve as a movement, as, as, as those of us who were fortunate enough to work with him. Um, and he, you know, he was so graceful in that, uh, he did all of this he, with, with never really seeking fanfare or even credit. Um, he was always just in it to win it. That was all he cared about was, was, was getting, getting to the end of the, the mission. Um, and, you know, and even in those, you know, rare times that, that we disagreed on, on points as happens. And when you work with somebody this long, um, it was always with, with grace and, uh, the disagreement was always on principle and, and not, uh, ego or, or anything like that. Um, so, you know, we, we, we have a lot to, to thank for, for Steve, what he's, what he's done for all of us in the movement, but, but even more importantly, I think. Uh, a bit more important point of Steve's legacy here is that he's directly responsible for saving the lives of hundreds of thousands of people that would have been uh, put, you know, behind bars in a cage essentially for consuming cannabis, something that uh, he, he uh, believed so right, rightly uh, so was, was safer than alcohol. And by changing so many laws across the country, uh, he's, you know, made a deep impact on, on, on individuals and families of individuals who will never know his name. Uh, and, you know, after we're all, all of us are uh, also dead and gone, there will be, you know, untold millions of people who will have um, been, you know, spared uh, life ruining sentences for cannabis because directly because of Steve's work. And so all we can do is, uh, you know, mourn his loss, but make sure that we continue uh, working uh, for the movement uh, with integrity, with the kind of integrity and commitment uh, and principle that, that Steve brought to it uh, until we finally get to the day when cannabis is legal from coast to coast and nobody is ever again put behind bars for this plant. Uh, again, thank you uh, so much for this opportunity. Um, and, uh, I look forward to being able to honor Steve, uh, in some way in person in the, in the days ahead. Hello, I'm Chloe Grossman and I'm currently the director of corporate growth for TrueLeave. I had the pleasure of working with Steve in various capacities for about six years on and off, often with both Jordan and Andrew, which was so fun. Steve was my idol, my mentor, and someone I really deeply respected. 
Um, I was aware of him before we even met and I was a straight up fangirl. I thought he was the coolest person. I mean, he co-authored Amendment 64 and he jump-started the legalization movement with the phrase marijuana is safer than alcohol. He was also a public advocate for cannabis reform before practically anyone else. I actually remember being at a party in Denver back in 2014 or so and saying, oh my God, it's Stu Fox and being urged to go say hi, but ultimately was too shy to even approach him, which is pretty funny looking back at it uh, after working with him for so long. I really have Steve to thank for the entire trajectory of my career. We started working together on a California policy project in probably 2015, early 2015, back when I was with Denver Relief Consulting. That policy project allowed me to see him navigate conflicting stakeholder demands and find good policy solutions, and I was just so impressed. I got hooked on cannabis policy as a result and ultimately quit consulting because I knew I wanted to be on the policy side. Lo and behold, Steve called me a day later, and when I told him I had quit, he offered me my dream job on the spot. It couldn't have worked out better. At the time, Steve was launching a nonprofit called the Council on Responsible Cannabis Regulation and a government affairs firm, BS Strategies. He was executive director of both, and I served as his deputy for several years. Working with him one-on-one -on -one was one of the best experiences in my life. We worked on arguably some of the coolest cannabis policy projects to date and had a quiet but significant impact on domestic and international cannabis reform. We arranged cannabis fact-finding trips for politicians, produced white papers and industry standards, and drafted laws and regulations. It was just a really, really rewarding experience. Steve was extremely intelligent, I think as pretty much everybody knows, very strategic and taught me a lot of valuable lessons about politics, policy, business, messaging, and lots more. One of the things that really sticks out for me is how pragmatic he was. Where I was the passionate advocate, he was the grounding presence that reeled me in and helped me turn ideals into viable policy. His praise was often sparse and understated, but when it came from Steve, it really made you feel like a star. Steve was a genuinely good person through and through. He was a committed dad and husband, a feminist, a great friend, boss, and leader. He was the type of person to let everybody else take the credit. So I'm so glad to see his impact being recognized across the industry and even in Congress after his death. He was really like a dad to me, as well as to Jordan and Andrew, and he will be sorely missed. Hi, Sean Hauser here, and very grateful um, for the pod to create this space to share memories and, and sentiments about Steve. Um, I personally am, you know, just so grateful to have known and, and worked with and been friends with Steve for for close to a decade, and you know, really know I'm I'm one of the lucky ones. Um, I'll treasure so, so many things about Steve, but you know, looking back, I will really forever treasure my time at, at industry conferences with Steve, of which there's been you know so many over the years, and it was always such an honor for me to walk the conference and attend events with Steve. Um, and of course, he was always the, the best company. He sincerely enjoyed seeing the industry at work, um, as he should, since he had such a major role in, in creating it. 
um, listening to the discussions and observing what types of products were popular with the industry insiders were into at the parties. And he just had this kind of childlike spark and excitement to, to dip into the, the industry bubble um, at these conferences and just see everything that was going on. And, you know, I just have so many special memories of walking the halls and attending these events with Steve. We'd often sneak a good join or, you know, to step outside and share funny observations or and get the latest scoop on his daughter's basketball games and the latest music they were into. I always loved going to events with Steve and immediately finding the VS crew or Betty or Jan and finding a good join and always just having great laughs and the best time and could always count on Steve to help me make an excellent playlist. Um, I'll always remember one really late night in Vegas where we skipped the parties to go get a good hamburger which Steve always appreciated and almost like 20 people joined us because getting a burger with Steve was way cooler than any party. And it really was. Okay. We're back. Well, let's jump right back into this discussion about Steve Fox and the incredible impact he had on legal on the legalization movement. Betty, I'm going to start with you here. And I want to start out with arguably the greatest achievement of Steve's career, which is of course, making Colorado the first state in the country to legalize marijuana. Now, as we've discussed here, this did not happen in a vacuum. It was the culmination of years of work to normalize this issue in the eyes of Colorado voters. And Betty, you were the spokesperson for that campaign. So tell us, how did that campaign materialize and how were you chosen to be the public face of legalization for Colorado voters? And what role did Steve play in that first of its kind successful legalization campaign? Well, I think it's most important to note that it didn't come out of nothing, right? As you said, it came out of years of work and for laying the groundwork, um, including the campaign that Mason and Steve ran in 2006, uh, which failed to um, legalize in Colorado. But um, if I recall correctly, Steve described it as the cheapest public relations campaign for educating people about marijuana in Colorado was to run a ballot initiative at the time. And so six years later, we um, took to uh, took to the polls with a far more elaborate, far more um, well-funded, far more serious uh, and staffed campaign uh, to legalize cannabis. But let me say, like, still very much a grassroots uh, initiative. You know, it was me and Mason, Andrew and Chris Wallace and Shaleen Title, um, Brian Vicente, Christian Cedarberg. Um, and you all didn't know this was going to pass when you started this, right? Oh, God, no. I didn't know it was going to pass until I was watching Steve look at the county level returns on election night. You know, right, like, right, that, yeah. that's when I knew because he was glued to his laptop. Right. And um, even when the polling was coming back positive, I I didn't think we were going to, you know, there, there's always that part of you that that um, worries. It's a campaign, right? You never know until the votes are counted. So. Um, that campaign initiated well before 2012 with Mason, Steve, Brian, and a handful of others crafting the language, um, getting it on the ballot, uh, you know, getting, getting it on the ballot through a signature campaign, doing all of the groundwork. And the day that the signatures were originally turned in, I went to the volunteer pizza party um, that that Mason had put together um, downtown Denver and 
said to Steve, hey, Steve, you know, I think I've got about 10 hours a week of, you know, basically volunteer time that I could be putting toward this campaign. Would you be interested? And he looked at me, he said, well, we need someone who can talk to women about this. We're hiring for a, a like a woman's outreach director. I was like, okay, great. So I'll throw my name in that hat. And, you know, six weeks later, I'm working 70, 80 hour weeks and I don't sleep again until October. But um, <laughs> that's how I wound up uh, working on that campaign. Um, you know, it was a very... Um, uh, interesting campaign to be staffed for for the very first time. I had done a lot of volunteering previously, uh, mostly for get out the vote work, but had never been staffed on a campaign before and feel like I got to learn from the best in that moment. I didn't get to ever dress up in a chicken suit or a toga, um, but we got to... There's, there's still time, Betty. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I've probably dressed up in a chicken suit since. <laughs> um, you know, the the work that we did there was still really like responsive, intuitive, groundbreaking in some really fun ways. And we oftentimes surprised the opposition, um, you know, through learning about what they were doing just before they were going to do it and then showing up with more people to launch our own campaign. I remember one where it was, you know, like the downtown business, uh, you know, initiative group something or another to, there with the mayor to talk about how bad this was going to be for business. And we instead printed up a bunch of banners and had everybody dress up in suits and showed up with 30 people, which was more than they had with signs talking about how marijuana was for, legalization would be good for business. Right. And so we were able to just grab their message so often because of the work that Mason and Steve were doing to um, ensure that we were on top of that messaging. The day they announced their faith leaders uh, in opposition, uh, I stood in the parking lot outside and handed out our list of faith supporters, you know, and, and it was just constant, constant work to make sure that we were one step ahead of them on their message, just like when Steve was always one step ahead on vision. But I think there's something really critical here, right? Like Steve saw, that doesn't often get talked about, Steve saw just how important women were as you know equal members of this movement politically and um you know ethically i think you know the, he, he was one of the few men who um i've never heard a actually i shouldn't say one of the few i've never heard a complaint about any of you either but you know they're <laughs> one of those men who early on like stood up for you know women's place in this movement in this industry as consumers of cannabis and wanted to show that in a really tangible way um that like cannabis consumption and cannabis policy was just as much for the, for us as it is for anybody else i never felt like he treated me um you know, like that woman on the campaign, right? Even though my job was to talk to those women, the voters, you know, he always, um, you know, was incredibly respectful, really supportive and um, and visionary about the power of women in the movement. I still have a 
poster on my wall um, from the anti-prohibition movement, anti-alcohol prohibition movement that was such an inspiration to him where women actually were part of, were, were leaders in ending alcohol prohibition. And we modeled a lot of our work off of that. That's fantastic. And I actually, I'm going to come back to that a little later on the show, because I think that's a really important point and one that, you know, I knew, but I didn't realize the extent of it until after Steve's passing. Um, so we, we will come back there. But um, I mean, I think everybody other than myself and uh, Jordan were directly involved in that I-64 campaign. So we'd love to hear, you know, Andrew, Mason, you know, please chime in on you, what happened with that campaign, why it was so monumentous, and, and, and Steve's vision in, in, in helping accomplish that? Yeah, so I would just say that, I mean, the reason it was so monumentous is because we won. Fair. Right? You know, <laughs> it, wasn't the first, it wasn't the first legalization campaign. Um, you know, it wasn't the first big major one that possibly could have won. That probably was 2010 in California, although that one was not as well written, not as well run. Also, it's a lot harder to win in California than um, just because of the size and the amount of money you need to raise. You know, as, as Mason was saying, it wasn't even the first time legalization was run in Colorado. So the reason it was momentous was, was because we won. But the reason we won was in large part because of Steve. Um, you know, as Mason was saying, you know, Steve was a person who had, you know, not just a five-year plan, but like a 10-year plan. And, you know, when Safer was starting, um, it was, you know, really looking to the future for, okay, we're, we're going to run this campaign. That's going to increase uh, the salience of the issue. That's going to increase what people understand. Um, then we're going to, you know, run this campaign and this is going to be the real one. Um, and I didn't ever see Steve during the campaign because he was running things from Maryland um, from his home. And so it was always like the guy on the conference calls. I would sit there quietly in the conference calls and hear about policy and strategy and check in with Brian and check in with Betty and check in with, um, you know, uh, other people that were helping to run the campaign. And I was just there to learn, um, doing little things here and there, volunteering full time, pretty much. Um, and so, you know, I think what we, what we learned then was like the possibility that just putting in the time, putting in a good strategy and just like putting in the effort could have actually changed the world. Um, you know, I always thought it was possible, but it was really on that night when, you know, we saw there was like trucks from like Japan news stations and just like crazy international coverage of what we were doing. And it was a team of a dozen people really full time in those offices. Granted, it was hundreds of volunteers and, you know, thousands of people who have made a difference in cannabis uh, and activists forever, you know, but full time in the office, it was like a dozen or so people. And it was really amazing to see how small groups of people can change the world. Yeah, well put. I mean, I, I was there on election night. Um, you know, I was not part of the campaign. I was not in Colorado. I was living in Arizona at the time. So, you know, I was doing my part to, you know, make some phone calls and try and whip up volunteers. But I would, I would take no credit for being a, an actual part of the campaign. But I was there on election night. And, you know, as a veteran of the movement, um, there was, I mean, there was just nothing like it. I mean, I remember seeing, you know, Tom Angel in tears when the, when the, when the, when, when, when that was called. And I mean, for me, actually the most pressing 
moment was, uh, or prescient moment, I think was, you know, the morning after and, uh, and kudos to, to Troy Dayton for having scheduled an arc view, uh, event the more, the day after the election. Um, so that was a, that was a fun one. Uh, but I remember sitting with my business partner, uh, Josh Rosen, um, uh, drinking a cup of coffee, outside of the the Arcview meeting in the morning before we went in and talking about why this was so important. And I remembered a a poll uh, that I talked about a lot actually with, with Paul Armentano back in my normal days, which said that your know, support for legalization was right around 50% at that time. But when you ask people, do your, and I forget how it was phrased, but it was something like, do your friends and, and close colleagues or friends and family members support legalization? that number was like in the low 20s, which told me and told a lot of us that this is an issue that people are not talking about because it's taboo and they don't realize that the support is out there and that if people are, if people are enabled to have this conversation, that support is going to jump precipitously afterwards. And I remember telling Josh sitting there on this, on this park bench uh, drinking coffee that right now as we're having this conversation, there are people standing around water coolers in offices all over the country, standing around job sites, sitting around their breakfast tables. And, you know, the first thing obviously is, you know, it w- might have been, well, what do you think about Obama winning re-election? But, you know, partisan politics is, is polarizing, right? And so the next, the, 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 the headline after Obama wins re-election was Colorado and Washington legalized marijuana. And that all of these people around the country are now having a conversation about marijuana having been legalized in a way that's not taboo. And that that allows them to talk openly about this without any fear, because there's now the political cover that the majority of the residents of two states have just done this and that this is going to supercharge the drive for legalization in a way that we'd never seen before. And and I think that's exactly what happened. And if it wasn't for the work that you all did and the vision that Steve had, that Mason, you know, that you had and helped implement in those early days, we would not be sitting here today in in this state with 15 legalized state or, or oh, I'm, I'm, I'm actually behind the times. I think we're up to 18 legalized states with a thriving cannabis industry, with publicly traded cannabis companies, with with cannabis being legalized in Canada and elsewhere around the world. And that all started on that night in in Colorado. So, you know, thank you to, to Steve, but to all of you for all of the work that you guys did there. Um, no, um, no, Mason. Oh, uh, sorry. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say, like, uh, just a quick seg from, you know, from what you just said, I mean, I, I remember, uh, you know, um, what I remember about election night was, uh, you know, after all the party and everything, you know, and after I had dealt, I was handling all the, you know, the media relations stuff around it. It was, you know, we went to wherever people were kind of hanging out and, and partying and, you know, it was probably about 2 a.m. or what have you, 3 a.m. And um, I had, you know, I was going to do an interview that was at like, 4 45 a.m from in front of the capitol that was like for the east coast <laughs> and um and you know steve was like well i'll come with you know he's like i'll stay you know like like i'll i'll hang out for that and i was like you know yeah you don't you don't need to and he's like yeah well if you're gonna do it like he kind of just um you know he, he definitely wanted to you know he, he he always had an appreciation for like what was happening on the ground like as andrew mentioned you know he was kind of like 
involved in all of this from afar. And, um, but like for being so, you know, physically detached from everything, he had a, a very significant appreciation for how things were on the ground. And even like, I was always very surprised by that. You know, when I first started doing this, I was 22, 23 years old. And I'd be like, yo man, like, this is what people are saying to this, or this is what I think, people are going to, you know, this is what the reaction I'm seeing or what people are going to feel. And, and he would always really, you know, invest a lot in, in, in that sort of thing. Um, and so he wanted to be part of that. And we stayed up. I remember we went over to Tom's diner and ate at around three 30 AM before going over to the Capitol and, uh, and doing this. But, um, you know, what you talked about with the, the water cooler talk, I mean, that was really, I think, to be honest, like probably the, the, the most important connection that I think the two of us had was that understanding of, of, you know, mass communications and, and, you know, what was important. And it was not, you know, it was like the idea that we were not just necessarily trying to go out there and, and do some, you know, change a policy or go out there and get news about the policy, but go out there and do it in a way that would be entertaining so that people would want to talk about the policy. Um, and, you know, he, he knew that that was like key that, you know, and it took me a little bit to figure out. I mean, I caught him relatively quickly, but like throughout that, that whole Colorado initiative campaign in 2012, we actually started a sub campaign called talk it up Colorado that, you know, was really Steve's idea, but the whole thing was geared toward just encouraging people to talk to their friends and family members about the issue and giving them, opportunities and creating that space, like coordinating some event with conservatives and then sending something out saying, tell all your conservative friends about this thing that just happened or getting the democratic party to officially support the initiative and then tell all your democratic friends to support this or, you know, to, to check out this article or whatever. It was always a matter of like, let's give people ways to talk about this with each other. Um, because I think he, you know, even though he was never usually the one on the ground handing out flyers, he knew that handing flyers to strangers really doesn't go that far. I mean, it's, it's part of the campaign process, but like you need to get people to convey what's on the flyer to the people they know. And, and we actually ended up seeing exit polling that showed that in Washington that year where they didn't do that kind of concerted effort, something like, it was like two or 3% of voters said they heard something positive about the initiative from a friend or family member. And in Colorado, it was like 13%. Um, yeah. So he just really uh, had the foresight on that. Unbelievable. Um, so Mason, I want, I want to stick with you here. I mean, while, while legalizing cannabis in Colorado was arguably Steve's greatest achievement, he also played a huge role in founding and founding and developing some of the industry's most influential trade associations. So, you know, back in 2011, when the industry was still in its infancy and no state had yet legalized marijuana, Steve co-founded the National Cannabis Industry Association with his former MPP colleague and, and current NCIA executive director, Aaron Smith. He, he later went on to co-found the Cannabis Trade Federation, which in recent years has morphed into the United States Cannabis Council. And of course, you know, Steve was a longtime veteran of the movement and organizations like MPP that for years had carried the water for policy change in D.C. and in the States. So you know, why do you think it, is, it was that Steve felt it was so important for this emerging industry to have a unified voice around policy? 
I think this just calls back to that notion of Steve being able to see ahead and see what's coming. I mean, when he was at the Marijuana Policy Project in the mid-2000s, he, he saw that there was a need for this additional aspect to the to the debate around legalization and 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 really was a driving force behind getting mpp to to help fund safer then later on after colorado and washington you know or, or after states started establishing uh, i should say this was before legalization but after um states started establishing regulatory systems like in colorado and other places for medical cannabis you know he saw that there would be a need for a professional organized uh, you know, trade group to represent the interests of the industry. I mean, he, you know, knew that, that, you know, having been involved in lobbying on the Hill for so many years, he knew that you can only get so far with a good cause. You know, you can go to every member of Congress and say, this is the right thing to do. And it's only going to get you so far. But when you can say that there are X number of jobs and X amount of tax revenue associated with it, and we are an association representing those jobs and that revenue, that goes a real long way. And uh, he was able to, I think, convince Rob Campia because MPP really helped get NCAA started. Uh, so once again, um, Rob invested in what Steve was, you know, thought was, was the right thing to do. And they helped the NCAA get started. Um, and it's really, you know, just at every turn as there's a new need for a new voice or a new angle as, as, as emerged, you know, Steve had, had ideas for how to, how to, make that a reality and you know what it should be doing so um you know he really did lay the groundwork for so much of of this industry both with you know working on the ballot initiatives or lobbying but also for conceptualizing these organizations and you know what their agendas should be yeah i mean it's you know if you think about it today it's like it's impossible to think about the industry not having this kind of voice, right? And this kind of representation through, through trade association. But, you know, back in 2011, like it felt really early for that. Uh, and it wasn't, it wasn't a fait accompli. And I think much like the safer messaging and you know, passing legalization ballot initiatives, right? All these things that today seem like no brainers, um, Right. It started with the it started with this 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 forward thinkingness um, and thinking two steps ahead um, to, to get it to this point where, you know, we, we kind of take for granted the fact that, you know, now we have multiple competing trade associations um, and, and associations that represent different aspects and different facets of the industry. And, you know, that probably would have happened, but it, it would not have happened in the time frame that it did were it not for for Steve's vision. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that it's so important to focus on this part of it because what what I think in part what Steve saw was kind of the future of cannabis advocacy, right? That at, at some point, the philanthropists that got us as far as they did, we're going to start investing money into other causes and really expect, and this is something we talked about at the office all the time, that, that at some point the industry is going to have to step up and self-fund a lot of this stuff, right? At some point, and I think when still, you talk about this timeline... Right. And it still needs to. But but at that time, there wasn't even an industry. Right. And Steve was saying, we need to get everybody together. We're going to need to self-fund this stuff. We're going to need to be able to do that. We're going to need to be organized. We're going to need to professionalize. And and that 
you know, at the old days of NCIA, that's really what that group was doing in a lot of ways. They were bringing people together. There were they from conferences to press conferences to all these events and lobby days where people would show up in suits and be like, no, no, I'm a lawyer. I do this. I do that. And I think that opened a lot of eyes. I mean, the first time I went to an NCIA lobby days, I think a lot of times people looked at us and they were like, you know, you guys like, what are you talking about? You're a bunch of like lawyers in suits, but you're the weed guys. And I think it really helped change that. And then you saw that happen with each iteration, right? When, when the cannabis trade federation was founded, it was again, this idea, okay, we need to, there's, there's a lot of people with a lot of financial capital. We need to bring them forward. And then you saw the USCC and it's the next evolution. All of these different things were really Steve seeing how we were going to move things down the political chess chessboard, making one move after another and who was going to need to fill that niche. And I think that, you know, he just saw it years ahead of everybody in each one of these iterations and has pulled that together each time. And that's been kind of the continuing story of everything that he's done. So Jordan, you know, in more recent years, Steve was a principal at VS Strategies where he worked behind the scenes on nearly every successful legalization initiative and state legislative campaign. So can you tell us about some of the policies where he had you know, particularly big impact in recent years, particularly those where he didn't receive the credit or recognition because his role was largely behind the scenes and out of public view? Yeah, I mean, I think this is like the e the hardest easy question of all time because I think he was involved in all of them um, and he got credit for none of them, right? So I think the truth is like literally everything. I you know we just had a big um, when we have team meetings at, at the law firm we call them uh, vision quests and so we had a, a virtual vision quest um, and. He, uh, he, he, I, I gave up the VS strategies update after he, Steve gave the federal update. And the only thing I could think to do was to channel the animaniacs and like go through the state capitals song because to update the entire firm on what we've been up to for a year, I literally had to go through almost every state in the nation and be like, well, we were advising this group here and this group here. And we were talking to these folks, um, you know, whether it was, uh, Virginia, Massachusetts, Maryland, Alaska, Nevada. I mean, you name it. We had some kind of project going in one place or another. Um, Texas, Oklahoma. I mean, we're still working in Colorado. You know, I don't think anybody that works on the system today thinks it's a finished product. And we have a lot of work to do to make the system better. Um, hospitality, social equity, delivery, um, record sealing and expungement, the bill we ran this year to improve record sealing. You know, I mean, nobody, you know, we were talking on a team call today that we don't, we we don't even have a plan to issue a press release this, that we were the lead proponents on a bill for because we were so busy working on the next project and the next thing and the wise Florida campaign that Mason started. I mean, I think I could just talk all day about all the different initiatives that he was involved with. But I think at the end of the day, it all, to me, it all brings back to kind of one core principle. And that's, you know, something that we keep touching on was, was seeing the future. And, and what I mentioned earlier, justice and doing the right thing. Right. I mean, that was the, the, the legacy that he's going to leave at VS Strategies is really a unique political consulting firm and policy firm where I don't think we're like any other lobby shop I've ever worked with. We're very picky about the issues that we work on. And we always try to kind of, you know, make money while being able to sleep at night is kind of the firm motto. Um, and he had a very unique way of looking at it, right? Steve was, was born of advocacy, but worked very closely with some of the largest businesses, um, in the whole industry. And, you know, there were times when, when we even had to work on issues where, you know, 
if, if we were Yertle the Turtle and King of All that we see, we would write things very differently. But our job in that situation was to represent interests and, and try to drag them to the most reasonable point. And Steve would always say, well, if we didn't do that work, if we told them no, they would go hire someone else and they'd be way more self-interested. They'd be, they'd be way more difficult. But if we were the ones representing them, we would help them drag them to focusing on good policy, focusing on doing the right thing. And so, you know, I, I think when I look at the future of, of where we're going to see, Steve's influence is going to be on all of this stuff. It's going to be on every initiative that we've ever seen, but it's also going to be on the, the industry that's left behind, the fact that the cannabis industry hopefully will continue to evolve to be different and more responsible and more ethical than other industries. And I think every single project he worked on, that was the defining thing was was not which ones, because it was all of them, but that he was frequently the moral compass and the moral center in whatever project he was working on, trying to drive forward, focused first and foremost on doing the right thing. And, you know, we talked about it before, right? There's there's a reason home grow is legal in Colorado. There's a reason home grow is actually legal in a whole bunch of other states. And, and they didn't want that. Steve put his foot down and said, no, it's the right thing to do and we're going to do it. And I think that happened That happened a lot more than I think anybody realized behind the scenes that he put his foot down and was like, this is what we're going to do. And, you know, he's got a legion of basically his acolytes and children running around that are going to do the same darn thing every time. And I think he gave us he gave us the strength to be able to do that. Right. He gave us the ability to to know we could do the right thing. We could work with large businesses and still push to do the right thing. And that that's, you know, going to be the framing going forward of what we're going to be able to see is this legacy of of justice and doing things the right way. Uh, it's, a, it's a great way to put it. I mean, I, you know, I, and, and I'm so glad to hear that there is this, you know, this legacy of legacy of acolytes who are going to carry on that tradition. You know, I had a I had a conversation just a couple of weeks ago um, or a week or so ago with. Uh, well, I won't say who, but I don't, I don't want to give away which state this was in or anything because it was a bit of a, a private conversation. But you know, a, a contact of mine from the industry reached out saying, "Hey, you know, the state that I'm in really needs some help. Um, they're, you know, they're having a hard time figuring out how to how to implement this policy, and um, they really need some help. But you know, they don't want to officially hire anybody. So, like, who 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 can we call on that's just going to come in and like do this work with them because they just care about getting it right? And, like, the first thing I thought was like, "Oh, of course, I'll call Steve Fox." It was just one of those moments of like shit, right? Like, who do I call now? Um, and I did go to one of, your, one of, one of, uh, to one of your colleagues at Vicente Cedarburg or via, strat- via strategies, but like just the fact that like, that's immediately where my mind went to. It was like, oh, a state needs some work done, but they don't want to pay for it. Like, yeah, Steve will be there. Um, and we just, we need so much more of that. And I'm, I'm really glad that, that, you know, Jordan and, and Andrew and, and all of you are st- and Mason and all of you are still doing this work at via strategies because, you know, if you weren't doing it, I, I you know, I, I don't know who would. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, the one the one that I always think of is the Council on Responsible Cannabis Regulation. There was always some new organization or some acronym that Steve was kind of making up and creating. I, I remember and that one. The, yeah, I will chime in and say that it was the coalition until I told him that we were beyond coalitions at this point and it should be the council. And he refiled the paperwork and changed it. Well, we were very fancy, but but the truth behind the Council on Responsible Cannabis Regulation was that Steve basically convinced a bunch of business owners to give him a ton of money to do whatever the heck he wanted. Um, and it was the most it was the most unbelievable thing in the world. Um, you know, people you know, contribute a lot of money. There was no strings attached. There was no agenda. It was like, just go make marijuana legal and help create good policy wherever you can. And one of the main things that we did the first trip I really ever took 
And I think the thing that cemented my friendship with Steve maybe more than anything else was he and I went out to California long, long before Prop 64 was written and basically through this funding and these contributions held meetings. Um, I think it was it was two different trips to multiple day meetings with all the kind of heads of all the biggest businesses in California invited to come. The council paid for everything, paid for lunch, paid for all these hotel rooms. Um, I don't think they paid for the hotel rooms. They paid for lunch. They paid for the hotel meeting room and whatnot. And we had 25 people in a room and it was literally Steve. The first meeting was, was Steve kind of negotiating how all of this was going to be played and framed. And it quickly, I could see he was just dejected after five minutes because everybody wanted to argue about who was going to be in charge and how it was going to be framed. And he was like, Oh my God, this is going to be a train wreck, like blah, blah, blah. And I just took over and I was like, I'm just going to run like three and a half hours of nerd whiteboard talk going over policy issues. But the goal was with no agenda at all to get all the heads of the California industry together to push for a unified set of policies for the industry. Because he knew that if all the heads of the major California businesses came in and said, we want these 20 things when it comes to the industry, they could have gotten it. And, and it ended up breaking down. It ended up falling apart. And we still see the legacy of that in California today, which is that the industry is not very functional, that the regulations are really kind of really, I mean, basically put good people out of business all the time. And like you talk about seeing ahead, he saw ahead the need to do this. He created an organization that funded these meetings after meetings after meetings. Uh, and it was just amazing to be able to do. No, I mean, you, you make some really good points about the, you know, sort of the vision uh, and, and you know, seeing where this was all going and the need for unified policies. And I guess I'm going to end this segment here uh, by bringing up the fact that he wasn't just thinking about this in the United States, um, right? It, it wasn't only here that he had a policy impact. In, in recent years, he spent some time working on international cannabis policy as well, recognizing that this was and is becoming a global movement. So Andrew, uh, can you tell us a little bit about some of the impact that Steve was having and some of the work that he's been doing internationally to help to help sort of further this vision of, of unified policy? Yeah, you know, I'll, I'll go back to actually CRCR, the Council on Responsible Cannabis Regulation that Jordan was just talking about, because one of the main um, things that CRCR did, you know, in addition to putting out large white papers that Chloe and I had and Jordan had the uh, good fortune of getting to, to work on um, was to host um, elected officials and, and regulators, politicians from around the world. Um, you know, I remember meeting with uh, Jamaican officials and senators from Costa Rica and officials from Colombia. And, you know, that was a number of years before these officials themselves started really introducing laws, right? I get to work um, with Dan Smith uh, from Via Strategies and, you know, Steve was was a big part of this as well, um, you know, outlining all of the many different changes that are happening internationally, um, implementing their own medical cannabis and adult use cannabis laws. But before that time, you know, Steve had the insight and the foresight to raise money from the industry and individuals who are interested in order to have a vehicle where these people could come. We would show them, you know, I one of my jobs early on at VS, I was so lucky to be able to do this, was um, – really taking elected officials from around the country and around the world through like grow facilities and talking about weed uh, and regulation and pointing out plant tags. And, and this is a sort of, 
you know, normalization, right? A lot of what Safer was was education and normalization. And I think what Steve had the understanding was, you know, he looked at the polling around the world and recognized that a lot of the rest of other countries are even behind the United States. And we needed to work on the normalization there. Um, and that meant, first of all, taking elected officials through a new regulated environment and showing them that this can be done safely and effectively. Well, thank you, Andrew. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave this part here and wrap up segment two. Uh, but when we come back, we will finish off this moving tribute to the life and accomplishments of Steve Fox. Before we'll do, we'll hear some more testimonials from movement leaders whose work and lives Steve touched. Samantha Walsh, this is my Steve Fox tribute. How would I describe Steve's influence on my career or personal life? Well, I wouldn't be in this industry if it wasn't for Steve. Um, he would have had to have given the okay to hire me for MPP. And knowing that somebody with such great political gravitas gave me the thumbs up to, you know, lobby on behalf of marijuana implementation and legalization in, in Colorado, the first laws of its kind, I think is one, a huge confidence booster, right? <laughs> and two, it, it sort of creates within you a drive to want to continue to do work and do the right work to impress him. And, and that, and it's a, it's, that's something that I've always taken with me is, is this something that would impress Steve Fox? Now, that's not to say I haven't been on the opposite side of an issue of Steve, particularly um, the next year, the following year, when um, there was legislation around what is now the Four Corners Bank to create an independently chartered um, financial institution for marijuana companies to bank their money. This would have applied, they expanded it to nonprofits that deal with marijuana. They expanded the legislation to include um, employees within the marijuana industry, but they had excluded um, the hemp industry at the time. And considering I was still lobbying on behalf of the hemp industry as well, and we were dealing with farmers who were having their lines of credit cut off and threatened to be cut off if they were engaging in um, hemp cultivation, which was legal. But you know that was a that was a line in the sand drawn by the Colorado Bankers Association that if we had included hemp farmers to access this financial institution for banking purposes, that um, they would oppose the bill. And I just didn't understand why. That was the hard line in the sand for the Colorado Bankers Association. And um, we continued to press forward. And, I, and we were successful in getting an amendment to include hemp that was added in the Senate. Um, and then a bill had to go to conference committee. And this was, of course, I have a knack for this. And Jonathan Singer has a knack for it as well, is having our legislation that's related to marijuana be the last bill of session that's dealt with in the wee hours of the night. And this one went to conference committee. And I remember being pulled into a room by Christian and Steve. And, there, and Steve was very calm with me, but he said, Samantha, I don't know if you, if, if you understand that you're jeopardizing this whole bill. And but I do think he respected me for doing it. He said, I'm not going to tell you not to do it, but I just need you to understand this is a risk 
but I felt good about the risk. And I ended up being right in the end and rolling the Colorado Bankers Association um, by leveraging the governor's um, whip count on that. And we were successful in getting hemp added. Now, whether or not, and Four Corners has gone on to be created and exist. And I don't know if they service the hemp industry or not, to be honest, but it's really a matter of principle for me. But I do remember it was a little, I had a little bit of that dis- disapproving Steve dad moment with, when he pulled me into that room and was trying very nicely to talk me off of my mission. But he did respect me in the end for um, moving forward and, and sticking to it and in the end being successful. So I would like to hope that that was one of the times that, you know, maybe I impressed Steve a little bit. Hey, this is Kate Hawkinson. I work at Vicente Suderberg. I've been here for a couple years um, and I'm here to record my Steve Fox tribute. Um, I met Steve over the phone in my interview to work for Vicente Cedarberg and VS Strategies a little over two years ago. To be totally honest, I wasn't entirely sure who Steve was. I mean, I, I had heard his name before. It sounded familiar. I'd been working in the industry for a better part of a decade, um, but I didn't really know what all he had done. Uh, he was so kind on the phone interview. I just remember he had such a calming voice, just a calming energy. And I really appreciated that because it was, you know, I was interviewing. So that was really nice. And of course, I went home and Googled him right away. And to say the least, I was just blown away by the impact that he had on the industry. Um, you know, his demeanor on the phone, I would have never guessed that he was such a titan of the industry. He was so humble and just nice. And as evidenced by me being here today, my interview did go well and I did get that job and therefore I got to work directly with Steve. And while I didn't have the opportunity to work with him for as long as some of the VS OGs had, even knowing him for the couple years that I did had a strong impact on me and I feel super fortunate to have crossed paths with him. Um, This might not be the most notable, uh, but one of my very favorite things about Steve was his dry sense of humor. Oh, so dry. And it took me a while to figure out like when he was joking. And uh, but once I did, I just cracked me up all the time. Um, Another thing that I thought super was super hilarious. He would use a dash as a nose on an emoticon smiley face. Not like an emoji. I never saw him use emojis, but like an emoticon, a colon, a dash, and a parentheses. It always made me giggle. Oh, and his GIF game. His GIF game got was getting so strong over the last few months. Um, there are very few things that made me laugh more than when he sent me the let it go frozen GIF when he decided to relinquish depositing the checks for VSS and allow me to start doing it. Uh, Steve lived and breathed the notion of tikkun olam, you know, in healing or repairing the world. And I think he practiced this every day in his mission to develop the cannabis industry into what we see today. Um, we wouldn't be where we're at if it weren't for Steve and, you know, his drive to to make the world a better place. So to me, it feels like it's our responsibility to carry this forward. And I think one of the, it's, I think it's one of the greatest things we can do for his legacy. Joe Magacy. I currently work at Good Chemistry. I uh, I first met Steve in 2012 as I was just getting started to work on the legalization initiative here in Colorado, Amendment 64. I had just come off working for a Republican member of Congress 
and, you know, was passionate about this issue of cannabis legalization and, you know, breaking down the war on drugs and, you know, meeting Steve through Christian Cedarberg was uh, a huge life event for me and changed my life. And I wouldn't be here where I am today if it wasn't for Steve's mentorship and guidance uh, and, you know, instilling in me this desire to make the world a better place. And he, even though Steve, uh, you know, was a Democrat and liberal, et cetera, he understood the value of having someone like me who has a background in conservative center-right politics. And I really appreciate all the work I did with Steve. You know, one story uh, I'll always remember about Steve was in 2013 when we were uh, implementing Amendment 64 in Colorado, we were having a press conference uh, to denounce some activities by the, you know, smart moms, the mommy prohibitionists, that was going to take down our Amendment um, 64 and, you know, subvert the will of the voters. And we had a press conference. And right before this press conference in the st states, uh, the west steps of the state capitol, we got wind that the, you know, smart moms were also going to be there and kind of co-opt our press conference. And, you know, Christian Cedarberg and I were the sort of leads on our side talking about this. And I just remember very well all the way up to this meeting, Steve kept telling us, okay, guys, just keep your cool. Keep your cool. Don't take their bait. This is our press conference. We'll control the message and just keep your cool. In, in typical Steve Fox fashion, you know, cool as a cucumber, trying to instill it to a couple of uh, folks like me and Christian that can't are often not as cool cool as a cucumber as Steve. And, you know, lo and behold, he was right. And uh, Christian and I, you know, got into a pretty heated discussion with some of those ladies in our press conference. And, you know, a lot of those photos of us fighting uh, ended up in the pages of the Denver Post. And uh, all I can remember was Steve just saying, God, guys, just keep it cool, keep it cool. And I wish you would have listened to him. But Steve, I'll always hear that just to keep it mellow and keep it cool. We miss you, Steve, a lot. And I love you. And we all miss you. And I hope you'll be with us in the hallways in our lives. All right. Love you, Steve. Hi, Brian Vicente here. Um, just going to share a few words about my good friend, Steve Fox. Um, I... Uh, met Steve in 2004, uh, and I very much remember the exact moment I met him. Uh, he was um, giving a mock press conference at a uh, uh, marijuana policy project uh, sort of training that I was at because I was an MPP, essentially employee or fellow at the time. And uh, having Steve there uh, was a giant deal. Even during that period, he was already an established political operative, uh, was fairly prestigious. And I remember just being amazed by, uh, you know, people were throwing questions at him from the audience and he was you know, using these judo style talking points, turning them around, uh, really effectively answering questions about a very tough topic in cannabis uh, and really refining a lot of the talking points that we use today. Uh, and I, I knew then that this was a guy that I would love to interact with, I, 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 you know, and really was incredibly uh, fortunate because essentially from that point on, 2004 until Steve's passing, um, you know, I really worked with Steve, uh, if not daily, uh, certainly weekly and, and spoke um, to him, you know, very, very frequently. And, and we, we ran 
a great number of projects together over the years. Um, and it was such a joy to work with him. Um, he really was my, my primary professional mentor uh, throughout my entire career. And uh, you know, so this is quite a quite a blow for me, but, um, you know, we were able to legalize marijuana together and, uh, you know, it's really myself and Mason DeVert, um, uh, spoke to Steve, you know, 10 times a day during that campaign, Betty Aldworth played a big role too. Uh, and Steve was the guy in DC that was really calling the shots. Uh, he would have kind of explained to us how we could, take certain actions, run certain mini campaigns within the campaign. And he really was the director, even though on paper I was. And, uh, you know, we, we just solved so many problems, jumped through so many hoops, had so many good moments and bad moments, and ultimately were successful in legalizing marijuana in Colorado together. And that obviously has had such a big impact in our state, uh, but also um, nationally and internationally. It really has set the framework for dismantling the cannabis prohibition. So I'm really proud of the work that Steve and I did together there. And I think it's really remarkable that when he passed, although he was a resident of Maryland, the, the governor of Colorado released a statement saying, you know, this is a person of import in our state. And let's all uh, recognize that. Um, you know, Steve's influence on me was, was really great. And, and uh, from a professional standpoint, he, uh, you know, really taught me it was okay to to push outside the box, to be creative with campaigns and lawsuits, that sometimes, you know, winning uh, wasn't always the goal, really getting in the news, changing people's hearts and minds, getting them to think about cannabis, that it was safer than alcohol, that it was a legitimate medicine for people was, um, was a victory in and of itself. And we did that for many, many years in Colorado um, leading up to the ultimate legalization push. And then, of course, with BS Strategies, we worked uh, for years and years beyond that as well. Um, so being creative, really using the media to change hearts and minds, letting people know that uh, cannabis uh, is a substance that helps patients and, and other things, and getting those stories out there really uh, impacted the, the climate around cannabis and really got the voters where we needed to be. Um, you know, I think there's some lessons for me coming out of this on day one. I think, you know, COVID's been incredibly difficult on, on everyone, essentially. And, and there's a, there's a lesson there in with, with Steve is, you know, when you're in doubt and you're, you know, you have any sort of warning sign that a friend might be in trouble, you really have to reach out and sort of take that upon yourself. Um, uh, you know, additionally, I think there's a, there's a lesson here that, you know, life is fragile and that we, um, we really shouldn't take people for granted. We really should try to be as kind as possible to individuals and, saying that would have made a difference here, but I think that's a, a sort of a good life lesson is you know, life is fragile and I would you know do anything to be able to have a beer or you know an email contact with Steve right now as we did 10 times a day uh, for a decade uh, and you know just providing that sort of basic humanity and civility. Um, and and I, I think my final sort of thought on this and, and this is a bit of a paraphrase from one of the many many tributes I saw, I came out for Steve either um, online or I mean, it was a period where I was receiving a phone call or text every 15 minutes from people that had been impacted by him uh, and wanted to share stories. But, um, you know, basically the, one of the talking points that resonated with me was, you know, really Steve was the architect of legalization and he got, uh, he got us the first 16 states and helped us win those first 16 states. And, and now as we all move forward with our careers and our, our 
daily lives in this in this movement and the struggle. You know, let's get the next uh, 34 for him. So uh, you know, I plan on continuing to do this work for a while. And whenever there's victories, big or small, um, they're going to be on the backs of, of the work that Steve put in. And we're going to get those next ones for him. So uh, Steve and all the colleagues out there, we, we love you. And um, we'll get through this together. Thank you. Hi there. Uh, for those of you who don't uh, know me, my name is Krishid Koja. Um, I have the pleasure of serving uh, currently as the chair of the board of the National Cannabis Industry Association, an organization that was founded by uh, Steve Fox. Um, in addition to um, being a professional uh, acquaintance of Steve's, uh, I counted myself among his friends. Um, you know, and thinking about um, what I wanted to say about Steve for this tribute, uh, I, I'm, you know, was really, to be honest, kind of um, flailing around. There were so many instances where, you know, I just felt like an idiot around Steve, to be perfectly candid. Um, you know, here we have somebody who was a titan um, in our, our circle of cannabis policy and reform. Um, and, you know, I, you know, always felt, uh, pretty inadequate, um, you know, notwithstanding all of the other things that I'd done in my, my career, um, you know, I never felt like I could hold a candle, um, to, to Steve and, you know, he, um, he was a genius, right. And, and, um, and he is, um, was, and, and is responsible for a lot of the progress that we've had over the last several years in cannabis law and policy. Um, and so I always had, you know, imposter syndrome around him, um, you know, and I, I felt like that was pretty obvious to him. Um, you know, I, I would try really hard to say things, you know, when we were at, you know, work meetings, conferences and professional settings. I, I just always wanted to say things that were uh, insightful, you know, not just for the sake of being insightful, but also, you know, and I was hoping that he would somehow be impressed um, with what I had to say. And I don't know if that ever happened uh, or not. Right. But um, one of the other ways that I would deal with my imposter syndrome around Steve was when we were in social settings after uh, after we were outside of, you know, sort of work meetings and whatnot. Um, I, you know, I would try to, I would try to amuse him. I would, uh, I would kind of play the fool and be a little goofy and, you know, would want to, uh, want to get a rise out of him, want to get a laugh out of him. Um, you know, and to me, like, you know, when we were in those work meetings, he was always as serious as a heart attack. Um, and so, you know, I, and seeing as how I, you know, probably never said anything that was all that impressive to him. Um, you know, or at least so I thought. Um, I, I wanted to make him laugh. Um, and so I recall this one instance um, where we met uh, in Anaheim for an NCIA conference, um, uh, California Cannabis Conference organized by NCIA. And I recall that we had um, a, you know, uh, several meetings, but we had one meeting in particular um, earlier um, in, in the day uh, during one of the conference days where we talked about regulation. We talked, uh, we had a long conversation about how um, you know, we did not want to see products on the market that uh, blended cannabis and tobacco, right? We didn't want that baggage. Uh, we didn't think it was, you know, the right move for us as an industry. Um, and so we just, you know, wanted to steer clear of that. So we had, you know, a fairly long discussion about how these products, you know, we should not be advocating um, to have the regulators in California allow these products. And we were at a point where it was post Prop 64, but pre-regulation. And so it was kind of a gray area time period. 
where there were a lot of products on the market that you know weren't going to exist anymore, right? And so, um, so we'd have this long discussion, and then you know uh, later in the day, as um, you know, staff, uh, other folks from NCIA, um, you know, friends would would kind of gather outside for uh, the the a smoke circle essentially um, after all the day's work was done. Um, you know, I remember having um, a uh, a client um, uh, give me a a blunt, right? And this, you know, he didn't know we'd had this discussion earlier in the day, and he's just sort of like, "Hey, you know, these, you know, we have to, we have to get rid of these. They, we can't sell them anymore." And so, you know, would you like one? Uh, and so, you know, of course, you know, I I used to love smoking blunts when I smoked tobacco, and so, um, you know, I I of course took it. Um, you know, and then I saw that Steve was uh, was within ear shot and was was in our circle um uh, when i got handed this product and i just kind of you know i i felt um like you know i felt like i almost shouldn't um smoke this in front of steve right and so i was like steve you know look, look what i just got right and i kind of you know um again trying to to be a little bit goofy and and um uh and share this you know this, this sort of transgression right that like i had this product we just talked about how you know you really hate you know these these products and we don't want them on the market and so you know and here i have one right you know um, what do you think of this? Um, and, uh, of course, uh, you know, aside from the fact that we'd had this very serious, uh, policy discussion, um, you know, Steve was still an avid consumer of both cannabis and tobacco. Um, and so, you know, um, I thought he might say, you know, no, thank you. I, I, I don't want any of that. Um, kind of stick to the party line, but, um, you know, uh, he, um, he was more than willing to, to share, share that blunt with me. And, uh, we enjoyed the hell out of that blunt, um, uh, during that time. And, uh, and knowing that we wouldn't, you know, ever see another one of these products come from a regulated shop, uh, soon to be regulated shop in, in the future. And so that's one of my, my fond memories of, um, you know, trying to, uh, to get a rise out of, out of Steve and then just, you know, uh, being able to have a good time, um, with him. Um, uh, not, not, uh, withstanding the fact that, uh, you know, again, I kind of always felt like uh, a bit of an imposter, uh, around him compared to him. I think, you know, most people were, um, you know, they, they could not hold a candle to Steve. And so, um, you know, I, um, I will carry that memory with me, um, uh, as well as many others. And, um, uh, yeah, just, just want to say how grateful, um, I am to have had Steve in my life, um, as a, a friend, as, a uh, as a mentor, um, and as a leader, um, in our movement and, and industry. And, um, we'll miss you, uh, terribly, Steve. And we are back. So for this last segment, we're going to do this in lieu of finishing moves this week. Um, doesn't feel like a show that's appropriate for folks to just talk about anything that they want. So for this one, I'm going to ask each of you a question uh, about your work with Steve uh, that I think is, is sort of relevant to, to each of you specifically and, and hopefully to our audience in general. Um, as I'm sure our listeners have gotten a sense of by now, Steve was never the type who sought recognition or accolades and was never the most comfortable being the person at the press conference podium, instead preferring to empower and promote others and mentoring a generation of young leaders. In the days after Steve's passing, I was amazed at how many people in the movement from all across the country 
came out with stories about the ways in which Steve helped them personally, like coach them, reached out with offers of assistance, even for what seemed like relatively small campaigns and sometimes in more remote parts of the country. So Betty, one of the things that really stood out to me was how many women spoke out about the impact that Steve had on their lives, right? in particular, mentoring them and helping make them more effective advocates for change. Uh, Dale, Dale Sky Jones, uh, who was spokesperson and political director for the uh, 2010 California ballot initiative that narrowly failed, spoke really passionately about the support that Steve offered her at a time when most of the movements were discouraging her from moving forward with a campaign that most thought couldn't be won. Now, you're certainly known as one of the most successful female activists in a movement largely dominated by men and someone who has mentored and promoted countless other female activists in this movement. So I'd love to get your perspective on the role that Steve played in empowering you at a time when there were very few female role models in the industry or the movement to look up to and what you've seen him do for others in similar positions. I have... um said a handful of times um i wouldn't i wouldn't be who i am without steve and someone corrected me and said oh you'd still be betty aldworth without steve but you might not be betty fucking aldworth <laughs> which is a nickname <laughs> that i got um a long time ago but after colorado and the the simple truth is that steve saw something worth cultivating in me and he made an investment in cultivating that. He taught me so much of what I now know about, you know, how to move people in drug policy and, and you know, those that that public message, the public education, the mass communication that Mason was talking about earlier. He, I think, saw the the male dominated movement for what it was and knew fundamentally that we needed more women around. Um, I needed more women around who were smart and independent and able to, you know, drive forward a, a an agenda, a message, a uh, movement that included women fully. And he did that you know, not just politically, but also personally, right? He, um, I heard stories after he passed about how he had seen other men behave inappropriately at parties and would immediately stop them and say, what are you doing? You know, like do that bystander intervention that's so important um, for women to be safe in a, in a like social workspace. He would you know, fundamentally, like he just never treated me like the one with the only woman in the room. He treated me uh, like an equal, um, even though I don't think for a moment that I was in terms of, you know, experience, intellect, um, you know, uh, intuition or any of those other important things. He really was always just tremendously um, respectful and would hear me out. And, um, and that was really important, you know, uh, especially with some of the other folks in this movement who, for whom that wasn't the case. And if it weren't for Steve tapping me for that campaign in 2012 and letting me come work with Mason and Andrew and the crew, um, I don't know. I don't think that I would be anywhere near where I am today. 
if it weren't for the, you know, ways in which um, we worked together then, if it weren't for him supporting my work at NCIA afterward, and then every once in a while when I was at SSDP calling me up and, you know, dropping some ideas <laughs> on my desk for me to consider for SSDP, if it weren't for the dozens and dozens of hours of conversation, you know, outside of chambers or, you know, outside on lobby days or whatever it might be, his coaching and mentorship, I wouldn't be where I am. And I know that like, I'm not unique in that. Uh, thank you for that, Betty. Um, Andrew, I mentioned earlier that you were an SSDP campus activist during some of these campaigns. Um, you know, despite Steve having already achieved a position of significant stature in the movement, he, he always took the time to work with and mentor young student activists coming up in the movement. So can you talk a little bit about his work with young people and the impact that it had on a generation of student activists, particularly your generation? So, you know, my time uh, as a student drug policy activist, you know, I, I must have met with Steve a time or two, um, but it, it's hard for me to remember specific conversations we had. I, I was likely one of a few dozen or a few dozen kids at a, at a conference who would come up to him and, and ask him for questions or advice or even hand him a hand-printed business card. Um, but really what I do remember quite extensively was, you know, my time after the campaign as kind of one of the youngest members of the VS ecosystem. Um, and there was sort of respect that he gave me. And, and I would also extend that to, to Brian and Christian and others, um, as far as kind of initial early policy conversations, um, you know, I, I think Steve, as Betty was saying, was, was really good at, at recognizing, um, people that he wanted to amplify um, and he wanted to um, both teach, but also include in the conversation. And I was very, very fortunate, you know, along with, with Chloe and Jordan and others to be one of those individuals. Um, and it's really uh, the, the times, you know, we'd be on conference calls or early on in meetings and Steve would just like, you know, be having a conversation, this or that, and then just like throw it to me on something. Um, in some rooms that I was, you know, 15, 20 years younger than other people uh, and be able to kind of riff on a policy aspect or, or riff on an economic analysis of a certain state or a program or a movement. And, and that really, you know, I think that, that Steve not only lended legitimacy um, to this movement in a lot of ways in the way that he approached things, but helped many young activists in lending legitimacy to their own knowledge and their own experiences. Um, and that was really invaluable to, to my development um, as an activist and just in the career generally. And I owe that much of that to Steve. Thank you, Andrew. Um, so Jordan, another group that Steve aggressively courted was politicians and politically inclined attorneys, let's call them. Uh, you know, he, he actively recruited state's attorneys general to get on board with reform and spent countless hours with state legislators around the country. Now, you worked closely with Steve on many of these campaigns. So could you talk a little bit about his approach and how he was able to turn around so many elected officials on this issue, even at a time when it wasn't the most politically popular thing to do? 
Yeah. You know, it, it's so interesting. The way you frame it is like another group of people. Um, but after listening to Betty and listening to Andrew, it almost, it just feels like it's more of the same, right? Steve, St- what Steve always wanted to do was work through other people, right? And whether that was em- empowering Betty or Andrew or me or Chloe or all of the his policy children throughout kind of the whole world, that's really what what he wanted to do was empower other people to carry his message. And he understood that the biggest impact that he could have was turning someone else on and having them turn on 12 people in, in tow. And so I think that's really what we saw when it came to politicians, when it came to attorneys, states attorneys general. You know, I, I think of I mean, it's my favorite work project in my entire career was the, the Council on Responsible Cannabis Regulation. It was the the only thing that that really just we we could say whatever we wanted. We had no clients. We had no, you know, guardrails other than when Steve would rein Andrew and I in railing about God knows what at some point because we would get off on a tangent. Um, but, you know, it was such an important aspect of, of what we were doing at the time. And, and really, that was the vehicle through which we were able to do all these things. And it boils down to just being right. You know, I say it all the time with our, our staff at VS Strategies. It always helps to be right. And we were right when it came to cannabis policy reform, and we continue to be right. And really, we took that righteousness that that we are correct about this policy and had p- person after person after person who disagreed with us come to Colorado, take them on a tour. And if you went on a tour with me or Andrew or Chloe, it didn't matter where you started. Nobody left believing in prohibition. Not one person that we ever went on a tour with left believing that prohibition was right because it was infallible. Once you saw it, once you dropped all your fear and you actually saw the regulations, the level of oversight, the badging, the checking, everything that the Colorado model had really become um, from a regulatory perspective, it was inarguable that this was better than what was going on in your home state or your home country. And whether, I mean, the time the Colombians came to Colorado to learn about marijuana, there was a delegation from France and Germany. There was delegations from, I mean, we must have done this 50 times to the point where like the jokes were timed, the routines that we would get, like everything that we had done. So it was like performance art by the end. And it just changed mind after mind after mind after mind because everything that their preconceived notions were were torn down to its studs and built back up on a framework of regulation and responsibility. And, and it was, you know, he, what he saw was, look, you know, we spent, you know, 10 hours with a delegation from another country taking them around facilities. Those were, whether they realized or not, a set of unknowing Steve Fox acolytes in a sense, right? That, that he had taught Andrew and Chloe and I and all the people that were doing this. And then we convinced them, Hey, look, look at this. This is better than what you're doing. It's arguably better. It's safer. It's more secure for everybody. And he knew that he would be able to then influence policy in that country, in that state, having never set foot in it, having never talked to anybody. I mean, the truth is, I don't even think Steve was there for most of these tours or most of these meetings. He taught Andrew and I, we taught all these other people, and then they went back to their country and moved legalization forward. And Steve never talked to them. He never even saw those people, let alone the people that actually had the pleasure of working with him and meeting him. And I think what he knew was that was how we were going to change the world. And he needed to do it through not just the drug policy folks, but the folks who disagreed with us, because the more people that kept talking about it, the more people that kept looking at it this way, the more the world would change. And and he said he just pushed the ball up to the top of the hill 
and kind of got out of the way and, and look at the world now. It's amazing. You know, the, the, the main reason that I made the move from advocacy to the industry back in, in late 2009 um, was having, having gone on a tour of Harborside Health Center when I was executive director of SSDP um, with a couple of members of the Oakland Police Department, uh, which was, you know, hardly the, uh, you know, these were, these were hardly your, your, so your target demographic for, for legalization or supporters for legalization and having them walk through that facility and come out of it saying, this is not something I'm ever going to need to be worried about. Like you're never really going to hear from us and we're fine with this being in our community. And to hear these police officers say that after having seen what regulated cannabis looks like, was a, it was a light bulb moment for me. Right? It, it, it made me realize that if we can just show the world what a post-prohibition world could look like, if we can just show people what regulated cannabis commerce can look like, that we're going to change hearts and minds and we're going to win on this issue. Um, right. It, it was it was the, the realization that what was going on in all of these and what is still going on, it doesn't feel like it anymore. Right. But what's been going on in all of these states, or all of these businesses, we're all engaged in an act of civil disobedience. Right. Everything that we're doing is still illegal under federal law. Right. Th these businesses could land a federal death sentence for the amount uh, 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 by law uh, for the amount of cannabis that's being cultivated in some of these facilities. Um, right. It's it's uh, and. Steve saw that, right? I mean, what you're talking about here, the ability to walk elected officials from other states, from other countries through this regulated environment and replace the stereotype that they've had drilled into their head for so many years about what cannabis commerce is with this vision of a well-regulated, well-run uh, professional environment has done more to bring about an end to prohibition in this country and globally than I think, than arguably anything else that any of, any of us have done as advocates on this issue. And that intersection of the industry and advocacy is where Steve lived um, and what he really seemed to understand. And there's a lot of legacy there, but I think that what you just talked about, that is, is I think, maybe the most important legacy to take away from this um, and one of the reasons why we've been as successful as, as we have been. So th thank you for, for, for bringing that up here, Jordan. Um, and Mason, I, I want to wrap this one up with you. Um, we have talked a lot here about how Steve was, Steve was rarely the person in the limelight, right? how he preferred to prop up his colleagues and empower new activists. And there was arguably no greater beneficiary of Steve's mentorship than you, Mason. So I'd like you to close us out here by talking about the way that Steve impacted your career and, and his approach to empowering so many others that he has in, in this movement. Um, yeah, you know, I was Steve's proud puppet for several years. Um, and, um, you know, I, I mean, I think that... Um, what was so remarkable about him is that he, he, you know, he knew what he knew and he knew what he didn't. Uh, he knew where there were gaps in his knowledge and that he was very welcoming of, of others who could fill those gaps. I mean, I remember, you know, in terms of, you know, I mean, I, I first met Steve at my uh, job interview while I was, you know, 
the summer after finishing my senior year of college. And I remember him asking, you know, it, it had been about, you know, three or four weeks since graduation. I was still looking for a job. And he, you know, asked what I've been up to since graduation. And I, you know, it was like, I've been in parking lots selling t-shirts at concerts, you know, and his response wasn't to like, just be like, Oh, whatever. And, you know, irrelevant, move on. He was like, very intrigued. Um, little did I know he had had this, you know, idea about branding cannabis as being safer than alcohol and this whole idea of making it a hip thing to put on t-shirts. Um, but you know, he was like, Oh really? So like, did you design them? And like, how did you get them printed? Like, how many did you make? Like, like he was just like super interested because he'd never made a t-shirt and he knew that that was something he wanted to do at some point. So it was almost like he was kind of like fishing for information so that he could now like, you know, I kind of envisioned him like me walking out of the office and him like sitting down at his desk and like opening up a spreadsheet of like all these theoretical services he might need in the future and like marking off like t-shirts. Like, you know, like, like, um, but he, he like, you know, was, was always, always, um, open to learning about, about these things, whether it was about work-related stuff or, you know, his, his curiosity on, you know, the music scene. He loved coming to Colorado, going to Red Rocks, seeing bands he'd never seen before. Um, but, uh, you know, without a doubt, um, no person other than my parents has impacted my life more than him. Um, and he was really, you know, kind of like for me, I mean, really just, uh, as I said earlier, I mean, he was, he was like the, the North star to a sailor, if you will. Like, I mean, like it was like something that was there that you could fall back on for direct, like to find direction and reorient yourself. Um, so, you know, his lot, like being gone is, is certainly devastating. Um, but he fortunately was also great at, at instilling, uh, you know, confidence in, in, in people. And, um, you know, while, while, you know, as some others have mentioned his compliments were not necessarily effusive and frequent, um, they were heartfelt and, um, you know, certainly, uh, helped, help me, you know, figure out what, what I was doing right and what I wasn't. And, um, you know, kind of always have that, you know, um, Steve Fox is my spirit animal mentality. Well, thank you for that, Mason. And I mean, look, I know all of us were really personally impacted by this loss, and I can't imagine how difficult this must have been for you personally uh, of, of, of anybody else in this movement. So I, I thank you so much for you being here with us and, and taking the time to, to do this. Um, and I hope that others listening are going to are going to take away a lot from this and, and have a better understanding of just what an unbelievable impact uh, this man had on this issue that we all care about and that, uh, that, that our listeners tune in to, you know, to learn about every week. Um, because the, the topics that we talk about from week to week on this show, um, none of this would be happening if it wasn't for the work that Steve did and the work that all that, that you did Mason and that frankly, all of you have done to lay the groundwork, um, to get us here today. Um, so, you know, since we're not doing finishing moves today, I'm going to close us out with my own sort of story. Um, since I don't have a question for myself, that would be awkward. Um, and uh, that was, this was you know, a few years back uh, before the 2016 ballot initiatives. You know, one of the states that was on the map that year was Arizona. 
Uh, it ultimately was the only one that failed. I think it's the only legalization initiative that's failed post 2012. Um, although the, you know they they did come back and win in, in 2020. Um, so, uh, but at that time, you know, I had just moved from Arizona to, uh, to from Phoenix to Boston. Um, so I was involved in both the Arizona campaign and the Massachusetts campaign. Um, and there was a moment there when the Arizona campaign very nearly blew up. Um, there was a big spat between the marijuana policy project, really Rob Campia in particular, and the, um, and, and the dispensary owners in Arizona, um, to the point where some of the dispensary operators went and formed their own campaign committee to run a, what would have been a competing ballot initiative. And everybody knew that if there were two initiatives on the ballot, they would both fail. Um, right in the end, there was only one that still didn't quite make it, but it was really, really, really close. Um, and you know, things got very ugly and they were starting to get ugly even in the media at that time um, with, uh, you know, law, Rob Campy at MPP kind of lobbing shots at the dispensary operators and threatening, you know, protests outside of their stores and, you know, dispensary operators uh, sort of, you know, talking back, uh, you know, negatively about, about Rob and MPP. And it was just clear, it was clear that this was, this was on the verge of completely blowing up and blowing our chance at legalizing in you know, what, what would have been a, you know, a, a hallmark state, right? A Republican state in the South, in the South, well, then a Republican state in the Southwest. Um, and I was kind of brought in because I, I was involved in the Arizona scene, but I didn't have a, a direct stake in the business in, in the state at that time to help kind of play peacemaker between the, the, the local dispensary operators, uh, many of whom I knew personally and had worked with, and MPP also, who I knew personally and had, and had, worked, and had worked with through the years, um, and you know, spent weeks on the phone with folks on both sides trying to figure out what the real issues were, how could we resolve this, resolve this conflict, and eventually got both sides to agree to a meeting in Washington, D.C. The dispensary operators voted for three representatives to fly to D.C. and represent them. I flew down to D.C. to play moderator, and I, I took a look at the situation and said, I, I can't do this alone, uh, right? I'm going to have Rob and his top-level you know, deputies at MPP and all these folks, and they, 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 this has been so acrimonious. This ne I need to make sure that this stays focused on the details of the initiative, right, the policy details, and not on these personality conflicts and these broader issues. And so the first person that I called was Steve Fox, and I said, Steve, like, I need somebody else in the room there with me. I need somebody who knows the policy details better than I ever will. And because we can't be, we can't be unsuccessful here. This has to work out. And to his credit again, right? It didn't offer any money, didn't have any money to offer. Um, Steve was not an MPP employee at that time. Um, he, he had long since left MPP. And like he's done on so many other occasions, Steve said, absolutely, I'll be there. And spent you know, about a week on the phone with Steve going back and forth on all the issues and how we're going to approach this and what are we going to focus on and, and, and how are we going to deal with these personalities. And, and in the end, we, we basically locked the eight of us in a room in the, in the conference room at the MPP office in DC for about six plus hours um, and came out of there with a compromise um, that everybody could agree to um, that resulted in that Arizona initiative being the best funded initiative that we had had to date. Unfortunately, the opposition was also the best funded that we had seen to date, which I think is the reason why we lost very narrowly, but came out of that with a sense of harmony among the initiative and it, and, and, you know, everybody was on board and that would not have happened without Steve Fox. And again, just a moment that 
nobody really knew about. Uh, I mean, my involvement was barely known. Steve's was not known at all. And, uh, you know, in the spirit of, of, of the show and, and what we're trying to get across here, you know, wanted to get that out there and, and make that story known because for me, at least, it really exemplified Steve and his ability to go above and beyond when he didn't have to, when there was nothing financially in it for him to gain because he understood the gravity of the moment and the importance of getting this thing on the, on getting this thing on the ballot uh, because he knew we had a chance to win. Um, all right. Well, with that, I think we're going to wrap up this show. I am extremely grateful to all of you for joining us today. Andrew, Betty, Jordan, and of course, Mason, thank you so much for taking the time for joining us today. Um, this was really worthwhile. I think our listeners are really going to appreciate it. Um, as always, I want to thank Shay uh, and the team for their work in post-production. Uh, I want to thank our sponsors for their gener generosity in keeping the show on the air. I want to thank Overclock Remix for the tunes that they provide us. Um, please don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes so that other cannabis nerds can find out about the show. Uh, and uh, I hope everybody enjoyed this episode of Marijuana Today and have a memorable Marijuana Tomorrow. One take, Shay. One take.